Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Curtis Lockhart, head of research at the Charter Cities Institute. Today on the podcast, we're going to do something a little different. Uh, CCI has grown pretty rapidly recently from three of us in February to 10 of us as of this week. And on top of the growth in the number of staff, our projects have also grown and matured. And this growth combines with a, a broader surge in interest in the Charter Cities space more generally since the start of this year. So we thought we would pause to survey the space, as well as provide a high-level overview of charter cities as a concept and why we think charter cities is an idea whose time has come. And to help guide us through this discussion, we have CCI's founder and executive director, Mark Letter. Hi, Mark. Hi, Curtis. <laughs> so, Mark, before we dive into things charter cities, why don't we just give a high-level definition of what charter cities means? Sure. So a charter city is a new city development that has a special jurisdiction that allows it to adopt a more competitive business environment. And charter cities are important because over the long term, uh, governance institutions determine economic outcomes. And a lot of uh, places that are urbanizing very rapidly, primarily in the global south and Africa and Asia, do not have very good institutions, do not have very good governance. And so charter cities are a mechanism that allows to improve governance for these new urban residents and allow for much more substantial economic growth and poverty alleviation over the next 30, 50, 100 years. And so can you kind of delineate how charter cities are different than existing cities or any kind of local devolved power to current cities? Sure. So it depends on the country, but most countries have a national government, which typically has a set of laws and regulations which they control. So the national government will do things like labor law, will do have environmental regulations, will have banking law, will have sometimes the national government uh, determines business registries as well. And then the city government, again, this depends on the country, it depends on the jurisdiction, but then there's some things that are, would be specifically reserved for the city government. It might be things like policing, it might be things like education, but uh, typically the national government sets the laws and regulations which have the most impact on long-term economic development. And how a charter city would be different is we can imagine a country where typically the city would have, let's say, control over policing as well as education. And sort of the typical other things like uh, traffic control, like garbage collection, etc. And that is one city in this country. That is the normal city. Then the charter city would say, okay, now we will also have some authority that is typically reserved for the federal government. So in addition to policing, education, garbage collection, etc., it also might have things like business registration. It might have things like labor law, it might have environmental law, this sort of broader cohort of governance powers that are devolved to the charter city that allow the charter city to create a more competitive business environment, to attract investment, to create jobs, to spur entrepreneurship that can really set it on this long-term growth trajectory. And on this kind of line, 
charter cities as an idea, it seems quite similar to special economic zones, which have been kind of tested in other countries, most notably in, in China and elsewhere. So how does charter cities as an idea differ from these special economic zones? So most special economic zones tend to be relatively small. Their set of reforms are limited. They don't actually have any kind of delineated governance authority. They just have a specific set of reforms that are passed by the federal level, and they tend to be focused on a single industry. And this means while special economic zones can be effective for attracting investment, they're not sufficient for basically this transformational process that will lead to long-run economic growth. So basically, the city is the smallest unit that can really have sustained economic growth. So a special economic zone, if we imagine there's 50 acres, they build an industrial park, right? They improve production, they create some good jobs. That's not going to really be transformative. The question is what happens in 10 years, what happens in 20 years, right? If you build an, uh, a special economic zone that's an industrial park and 10 years, it's the same special economic zone in the same industrial park, you're not really growing. And so a city, a charter city, right? It has these these uh, four characteristics. One, it's, it's city scale. So it has, um, in addition to the industrial aspect, it has residential, it has commercial, it has services. It has this broad economic base that is sufficient to spur long-term economic development. So right, in addition to the size, then second to the size, there is also the set of authority that it has. So most special economic zones, right, they take the country's laws as a given and then cut around the edges. So it might be slightly less taxes. It might be a, a one-stop shop. It might be uh, no export or no import duties. A charter city has a different framing. It says, okay, instead of taking the existing laws as a given, let's just start from scratch. Now, of course, in practice, you're never really going to start from scratch. You want to leave the constitution the same. You want to leave criminal law the same. You want to leave international treaties the same. And then depending on the strength of the political, different political factions, right, if they're very strong labor unions, you might not be able to change labor law very much for a charter city. But I think that framing is important, this idea of starting a new legal system from scratch instead of like most special economic zones, which is figuring out what reform of the legal system can take place. Then the third part, again, is, right, what authority, not what, like, uh, reforms exist, but what authority does the charter city have to make these reforms? And so in a special economic zone, what will happen is the government will pass, often pass a law, and then they will say, all right, labor law is X in the country, it is Y in the special economic zone. Then there's an administrative apparatus set up to enforce Y in the special economic zone. The challenge is, what if Y is wrong? What if the, the real labor law that should have been implemented was Z? Then if the, the special economic zone is set up and they realize, okay, Y is wrong, we want to implement Z, right? They need to go back to the central government, maybe go back through the legislative process and say, hey, we want Z. This is very costly, this is very time consuming, Really, what you want is the city government to have the authority to say, okay, we tried Y, it's not working, Z is actually the better one. And they can just do Z without getting any additional buy-in from the federal government. So it'll be much more responsive to changes and to needs on the ground. And the fourth important aspect of a charter city differentiating it from a special economic zone is that the charter city has a much more varied industry base. So instead of focusing on textile manufacturing or on electronics processing or on like any of these single industries, there's really this broad base of activity where it might start with, I don't know, palm oil processing, then it builds out supply chain linkages, which are all in the city itself instead of external to the city. And then as the capacity builds up there, it kind of works its way up the supply chain, right? Like slowly growing, industrializing, creating more productivity. And so I, I think the maybe the, the primary distinction is that 
many, not all, but many special economic zones are primarily, right, like they attract foreign direct investment, right? That is their goal. Their goal is also to create jobs, but their goal is not to spur long-term economic development. The goal of a charter city is to spur long-term economic development. And those, those four reasons I mentioned are key to how kind of a charter city does it and how those differences allow it to, to be much more successful than many special economic zones have been. So just to kind of summarize, so it's one of the things that is a key differentiation between the two is just scale. Charter cities are a city. Special economic zones are, uh, seems like a smaller jurisdiction. The second is, I guess, uses within that zone. So you're saying charter cities, like most cities have multiple uses, mixed use, industrial, residential, et cetera, whereas zones and industrial parks tend to have focused on one particular industry. And then the third one, which I think you can agree or disagree, but this is probably the most important one, is devolved authority so that the local governing entity can be responsive to changes on the ground as circumstances alter. Yeah. So I would, I guess I would clarify, I've been using this as, as two separate things. One is, right, like what is the difference in laws? And then two, what is the process for changing the laws in the city or zone? So one, what is kind of right, like, okay, it can have different labor law, but then I'm differentiating the like different labor law from then the zone having the authority to change labor law in the future within a like well relatively wide degree of freedom versus it could have different labor law from the rest of the country, but it might not have that freedom to then make future changes. And I've differentiated those into two separate things. You don't really have to. It could just be one, but that's that's how that is a very important yeah, component. You could see one is like policies, right? Yeah. What is the law in a static period in time? And the other is governance. How do you change the yeah. laws over time? Yep. Yeah. I guess on the topic of governance, right? How would charter cities be governed? How would their governance be different from the rest of the country? Sure. So, and this will uh, come down to every individual kind of charter city, but what we see is, right, like the goal is to get basically these policy outcomes, but you need to align the incentives. You need to ensure that the group and the individuals making the policy decisions are rewarded for making good decisions and are punished for making bad decisions. Typically, right, like the argument in democracy is that if you will vote in people who make good decisions and vote out people who make bad decisions, and that will lead to these good outcomes. And while that has generally been true in a lot of circumstances. In some circumstances, it has not really really led to sustained economic development. It has not led to the, the proper decision-making uh, process. And I think the other important aspect to consider is with Paul Romer, what he was proposing was a high-income country would go into a low-income country and act as a guarantor. So Paul Romer came up with the idea of charter cities in 2009. He won the Nobel Prize in economics. And he proposed a high-income country would go into a low-income country, act as the guarantor. So Canada would go into Honduras and basically administer the city. What we are proposing is a public-private partnership. And so this is a mechanism by which a private city developer would go, would acquire the land, would work with the government to create this governance framework. And so the private city developer would have an influence on the laws of the city because they would need to ensure that their investment was well spent, that they would be able to recoup. And so in the US, for example, this is a typical process. If a homeowner's association is being developed, a developer has three votes for every unsold property, um, which basically gives the developer control of the homeowners association until 75% of the properties are sold. And because a city is a little bit different, a city doesn't really have a set amount of units to sell. So you can't say, right, like until 75% of the units are sold because you're not going to know how many units you're going to build over a 30-year time horizon. Like you can get general estimates, but you're not going to be able to get like a really a real strong point prediction. Mm -hmm. But you can still use that general framework of, okay, the developer basically builds, they have control of the governance process until they are able to kind of ensure 
the long-term profitability of it. And after that, it transitions to whatever the typical governance structure is in that host country, probably a, a, I mean, a democratic structure. And typically what we've found from our research looking at in the U.S. is the best way to set it up is a city council with a city manager who is elected by the city council. And so I guess bringing in the the distinction between kind of CCI's model with a public-private partnership versus the Paul Romer model that you went over, which is guarantee country coming in, on the PPP side of things, why would a government invite a company in in the first place to come and, you know, build and govern this city? Sure. So, I mean, one, PPP models are I think, pretty standard. There's also like the build, operate, transfer model, which is used for infrastructure building in both low-income and high-income countries. So there's been a widespread recognition that... Oftentimes, it's good to get private sector expertise, to get private sector interest uh, for these mega infrastructure projects. And then two, I think a lot of governments, particularly in emerging markets in the global south, realize the challenges that they are facing. They realize that they are urbanizing very rapidly. They realize that their existing infrastructure cannot handle the urbanization, and they are looking for and open to solutions. And this is basically coming and saying, hey, like here's a solution. This can address some of your immediate needs as well as long-term needs in terms of right infrastructure provision, in terms of uh, governance, in terms of creating housing, creating jobs. And so far, based on our discussions with governments, there has been an an interest in this. I think the key thing to stress is that while previous discussions about charter cities sometimes focused on autonomy or on like independence or right, like to some people even focused on like the sovereignty of the city. We are not focusing that. We are making very clear that the city is like uh, not sovereign. That is within the that is still under the national jurisdiction. That it is integrated with all of the regional plans for development. That it really is in accordance with the national goals. And we believe that this is a sort of value a valuable proposition for governments to come and say, "Hey, look, you have these challenges. We know you have these challenges. Here, we can come and set up this structure that allows you to." Or uh, right, like effectively meet um, and address some of these challenges in a better way than you would do without this this proposal. So I guess the concept arises this this idea like if if these cities these new city projects we're already seeing some being built in the global south, what enables um, these new cities to be more attractive than cities that already exist in these in these jurisdictions? Sure. So well, I guess one just to uh, clarify. There are uh, journalist Wade Shepherd's estimate. Journalist Wade Shepherd estimates that there are about 200 new master plan cities being built around the world right now. Some of these are being built by governments. Some of these are being built by private developers. Some of them are being built by uh, public-private partnerships. The value proposition is different in every region and in every city. There isn't really a, a universal uh, standardized model. So some, for example, Echo Atlantic in Lagos, Nigeria, is really being built for a kind of uh, high-income segment. They're kind of building themselves as like the Dubai of West Africa, really tall, really fancy buildings. Mm-hmm. Average price point is relatively high. Other projects, for example, uh, in Kwashi in Zambia, which we are working with, is going for a, a kind of middle-class appeal with with lawyers, with doctors, with teachers, folks like that. And they are focusing on a uh, creating a technology sector. You have Forest City in Malaysia, which is being built, uh, targeting basically high net worth individuals in China to come open a second home. There's probably some implicit thing of like park your money outside of China in case something happens because you see a lot of capital flight from China where particularly high net worth individuals want to buy property as kind of a hedge in overseas markets. And so these master plan cities have a variety of different value propositions uh, depending on the nature of the local market. There 
there is relatively little coordination communication between these. Sometimes there is regionally, for example, Africa projects talk to each other. We haven't been that in depth in Asia, but I kind of assume the Asian projects at least talk to each other a little bit. But the information sharing is is, is still pretty limited at this stage. And I completely forgot what question you asked. So <laughs> remind me. <laughs> like what enables a charter city to be more attractive than these pre-existing cities? Okay, so one, there are the the master plan cities. The reason that master plan cities are more attractive than pre-existing cities is because the master, and Curse is grinning at me now because I'm still not answering <laughs> the question. I'm getting there. Master plan cities tend to be a little bit more attractive than the pre-existing cities because they have uh, better infrastructure planning. They might have more reliable electricity. They have better public services. And that is why you might want to live in a, a master plan city. The reason you would want to live in a charter city as opposed to a, just a, a master plan city is one, you would still want to live in the charter city above a regular city for all the previous reasons of a master plan city. But then the additional advantages that a charter city would have over a master plan city is that it would allow for easier registration of businesses. It would allow for perhaps lower taxes. It would allow for a better right, like uh, environmental law. It would allow for this kind of a better education law. This this whole host of, of factors that you don't really think about that often until you like interact with the government. And in the US, we think about this like, oh, going to the DMV. But imagine if like that going to the DMV is like sort of right, like a, a major part of your life, that would be terrible. And so a charter city can basically remove that massive, right, like, I don't know, a burden. So if we think in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, it takes on average 36% of per capita income just to legally register a business. And so you could create a charter city where, okay, it's much cheaper to legally register a business. In some of these places, it's very difficult to pay taxes. A lot of the sector is informal. Okay, what if you, right, like figure out how to recognize some of the informal sectors, make it formal, and then what if you're able to collect a tax tax revenue from a much broader base, right? And here are these, I don't know, key governance issues that a charter city can help address that simply cannot be done without creating this, this new institutional environment. And I guess the broad question is what conditions in a country, like in a host country, I guess, would you say are most important in terms of where these new cities or charter cities are being located? Sure. So, I mean, there, there's a few key points. One is the government has to want you there because otherwise you're not going to get the the decentralization of authority that will make a charter city be successful. Two is you probably want to have a rapidly urbanizing population. A lot of folks talk about doing charter cities in the US or in Europe. I'm generally skeptical of most of those plans. The population just isn't there. US, most high-income countries, the demographics, uh, the birth rates are below replacement. The US only has positive population growth because of immigration. The most recent city built in the US, I think it's called Celebration, is just a retirement community in Florida. It's got like 250,000 people, but it's, it's I mean, it's a master plan community. It's, it's interesting, but it's, it's literally a retirement community. And so there isn't the demographics to actually build like new cities in most high-income countries. And then in addition to, right, like the openness of government, the government, as well as the demographics, you want to be on emerging trade routes, figure out, okay, here is a port that will be a much bigger port in 20 and 30 years. Here is a region that is is growing rapidly, right? Like bet on these, these overarching trends. And then I think the last kind of thing is that you need to balance the government in terms of their stability, right? If a government is, is very stable and effective, it's probably not going to need a charter city. It's probably going to be a high-income country. For example, that might not even be a high income country, but I've spoken with an advisor to Rwanda. I was like, hey, would you guys be interested in charter cities? And he was like, 
Well, no, Kagame, if there's a good idea, Kagame will just implement it. And so there is, right, like they have a pretty effective government, even though it's a low income country, and then the value add of a charter city is relatively low. And then some countries, for example, like Somalia, probably would not, a charter city would be relatively difficult value proposition there because it's so unstable. And so you need a, a degree of stability to, right, like attract the capital necessary to build a charter city. But if it, the government is is super effective and super functioning, then the value proposition of a charter city is, is relatively weak because the governance is already pretty good in that country. Great. So I guess turning to, you know, why charter cities are an idea worth paying attention to, why they're important, I guess the question becomes, why is, is now the right time for charter cities as an idea? Sure. So, I mean, if you look at the history of the charter city space, Paul Romer came up with the sort of modern iteration of the idea in 2009. You had Patrick Friedman launch the Seasteading Institute in 2008. And both of those, uh, I guess, proposals generated a lot of interest, a lot of excitement over the first few years, and then kind of lost a little bit of traction, uh, in part because it turns out that it's very expensive to build a floating landmass. And so the value proposition for seasteading became a little bit less apparent after the first two, three years. And then with uh, charter cities, Romer got interest in Madagascar, got interest in Honduras, neither of those worked out. And then he kind of walked away and a lot of the, the interest sort of died off. So what's I think happened now is several things. One, the trend of master plan cities being built around the world is much more apparent. And it's the value proposition of charter cities is a little bit easier when you can just focus on the governance and say, hey, look, people are building these cities. It's okay. It's a thing. So two, right? Like I think just the, the, there is more general interest. Like, right? like it's happening already. Yeah, it's, Might it's, as well yeah. help these existing projects. Yeah. yeah. That, that's a better value proposition. And then two, there's a little bit more like general interest. So when with Romer and, and Seasteading, when they launched, there was like, you had like strong visionary leaders, but there wasn't this like broad infrastructure, which is one of the things that, that Charter Cities is trying to build to trying to activate this like broader interest in Charter Cities. A third reason is, right, like I think to a certain extent, the withdrawal of the American defense umbrella, which has kind of opened the door for a much wider range of institutional possibilities than people accepted 10, 15 years ago. You're seeing this with Belt and Road. Belt and Road is implementing some like kind of what might be described as Charter City projects, where Chinese money is basically dumping in to build uh, new city developments in emerging markets that have different governance from the host country. So you are seeing, right, this, I don't know, change in norms, this change in acceptance that is making charter cities more of a possibility than than they were 10, 15 years ago. And, you know, you, you kind of went over Romer's idea of seasteading, change in the U.S. foreign policy and geopolitical stuff with Belt and Road. But in terms of significance and importance of the idea, how is it important for more on, I guess, the development side of things? Sure. So I think the international development community cares about alleviating global poverty, as well as sort of the specific I don't know, instantiations, uh, challenges that global poverty causes. So I think urbanization, migration, and I, I really think charter cities touches on a lot of these factors. So charter cities can help alleviate global poverty. There's almost 80 million, 80 million new urban residents annually. Most of these people are going to live in low income countries. They're going to be impoverished. They have few life opportunities. Charter cities can help make a substantial dent in those numbers by creating opportunities for these new urban residents, by allowing them to engage the global economy, by allowing them to flourish. And that tackles, I think, two of the primary values of the international development community in both uh, the, the, the challenge of accommodating this rapid urbanization, as well as global poverty. And I, then I guess more broadly, and back to the more, I guess, geopolitical stuff. So Francis Fugiyama, he had this uh, book come out, The End of History, right? There was this 
time in the 90s where liberalism was ascendant, uh, democratic capitalism was ascendant. Now, fast forward to today, there are literal courses being taught in political science called democratic erosion. So it seems like, you know, times have changed. So how can, I guess, charter cities help spread liberalism around the world? Sure. So I think, yeah, liberalism is definitely in, in decline. And I see, right, like if you look at the history of cities, particularly trade-oriented cities, which which are, are often on the coast, they have always been more cosmopolitan. They've always been more, more kind of liberal than the hinterland of the regions in which they were based. So if we think, right, like the sort of first proto-modern government uh, was in the late Middle Ages, it was uh, the Italian city-states. And you saw this spread where, uh, throughout where basically merchant-led cities uh, throughout Europe, you had the Hanseatic League in the north, in the Baltic region. They tended to be much more, I don't know, cosmopolitan just by the nature of being a trading entity. You need to right, like be able to interact with a variety of people from a variety of different backgrounds and you need to be tolerant of, of them. And this kind of spread, right? The Netherlands became a, a sort of entrepot country focused on trade, very cosmopolitan. You had, for example, the, the pilgrims who founded Plymouth Rock went to the Netherlands first because the Netherlands had uh, religious freedom. You had philosophers like Spinoza go to the Netherlands again because the Netherlands had uh, religious freedom at the time when it was very rare. And then that kind of, I don't know, form of government uh, went to England when William of Orange conquered England in the Glorious Revolution. And so you see how, I don't know, cities, how particularly trade and merchant-dominated cities have been these, these places of cosmopolitanism, of places of, of, of liberalism. And we believe by helping to seed a new generation of merchant, uh, uh, kind of merchant-led cities, of, of trade-oriented cities, uh, in the global south can renew this idea of of cosmopolitanism of liberalism of the value of things like private property of respecting uh, other people even if they might have different backgrounds from you and really allowing this demonstration of the fact that hey you don't need an authoritarian government to develop you don't need this this kind of intrusive state you can just have a effective government that allows you to to do your thing and everybody can can kind of prosper with that and that is something that i think we're we're seeing increasingly, I don't know, maybe rare, uh, particularly with the, the the rise of China, where a lot of governments are saying, "All right, well, like the the U.S. hasn't really helped us. Um, they might have given us some foreign aid, but it hasn't led to economic development." While China is promising an alternative model for economic development, and charter cities can be this kind of value proposition where it's okay. Look, there is a model for economic development that is liberal, that is tolerant, that is cosmopolitan, that does allow you to see kind of strong economic growth and, and poverty alleviation that can hopefully make the world a better place. So I think I agree. And, and, and you know, folks like you mentioned some of them, but also I, I remember, you know, Montesquieu talks about how commerce can, uh, I guess, make for more uh, moderation in mores and such like that. So I think this definitely aligns. One other thing I, I would ask, and I do see a bit of a conflict though, is right, you're asking these private new city developers to come in, which isn't necessarily the most democratic, which I guess most would align uh, democracy with liberalism. So how do you square that circle? Sure. So I think that one, democratic countries often come up with ways to tie their hands because this is kind of the central challenge of government is how do you get government to commit over the long term to ensure that they won't sort of renege on their promises. And so this is what independent courts are. Right? Independent courts are saying, look, the government will tie their hands by having the set of independent judges that will rule against the government sometimes, that will right, like uh, ensure the respect of property rights. We, we've also seen this with central banks 
where independents, almost all high-income countries have independent central banks, where they say, okay, look, we have decided that the government should control monetary policy, but we realize that putting monetary policy in the hands of popularly elected officials will probably lead to some very bad long-term consequences, because every, before every election, the elected officials will just want to well, pump a bunch of money in the system. Money printers go burr. Yeah. Um, and so I think it is possible for democratic countries to realize, okay, Right. It can be challenging because of some public choice reasons, because there are these special interests that might oppose broad reform. So we do it in a concentrated area, as well as we want to figure out a way to both tie our hands and ensure that this new uh, independent governing agency aligns with our long term values. And, and charter cities, I think, are a way that can do that. And I mean, currently, just because of the history, because of norms, I think they are right, seen as somewhat different from uh, central banks, they're seen as somewhat different from independent judges. But to me, that that is mostly just a, I don't know, historical quirk in that like charter cities aren't very common. So there's a natural kind of bias against new ideas, but figuring out how governments can tie their hands to, right, like align their long-term incentives has always been the central challenge. And charter cities are a way that can do that, that we think can lead to uh, substantial gains in, in terms of economic growth and economic development. Great. So moving on, um, effective altruism is this big movement. It's become increasingly large over the last decade. And they use this sort of framework, um, three-pronged framework around tractability, neglectedness, and scalability. So how would you say this idea that charter cities fits into the, the framework? Sure. So I've always, I don't know, been, I guess, effective altruism adjacent and quite sympathetic to their ideas. And I think developed, I don't know, the at least model the strategy for the charter states framework, I think broadly within that the effective altruism model. So as for three things in terms of scalability, right, there are 80 million new urban residents annually, there's going to be over 2 billion new urban residents over the next 30 years. Uh, this is probably the final wave of urbanization in human history. And so there's a chance to do a massive impact. The Charter Seas Institute, we are trying to lift tens of millions of people out of poverty. And so that has a tremendous scale in terms of neglectedness. Charter cities, I think, are still uh, quite neglected. If you look at, for example, the EA movement talks a lot about uh, existential risk, particularly the AI risk. But organizations like MIRI and especially OpenAI are extremely well-funded, right? They, their binding constraint is probably not funding. If we think about effective altruism within the international development space, there are places like GiveWell. GiveWell uh, funds, for example, anti-malarial uh, pills, uh, mosquito nets, deworming, cash transfers, things like that. And uh, I believe GiveWell gives upwards of like $100 million a year to these various charities. So again, right, those, those are good things. They should probably get more money, but they, they, there's already a substantial amount of interest and effort going there. You also see a lot of the right, RCTs are probably the hottest thing in international development now. The effective altruists pay a lot of attention to RCTs, right? JPAL is the MIT-affiliated um, research lab that focuses on RCTs. The last Nobel Prize in economics was won by the practitioners of RCTs. So there's a lot of interest. There's a lot of focus around that. Uh, if we look at charter cities in terms of the charter city space, the total funding for nonprofits in the charter city space is currently probably under $1 million a year. It's definitely under $2 million a year. I mean, I don't know the budgets of all the organizations, but like the total amount of funding is is very small. So I think there's a there's definitely a case that charter cities are quite neglected compared to other effective altruist uh, related cause areas. 
And then the third, so I did scale and I Nest tractability. Tractability, I, I think, right, hopefully you get that from this conversation as well as some of the other output we're putting out. But charter cities are being built. So new city developments are being built. There are d- real concrete steps that can be taken. We're working with projects in Nigeria, in Central America, in Zambia. We have a handful of projects that we're having conversations with in the pipeline that we haven't formalized the arrangement from Sierra Leone to Kenya to South Africa. We are hoping to expand to India and to Asia in the future, but there is a lot of interest in this idea. Um, There are meaningful concrete steps that can be taken that will have a big impact. And so I think that uh, charter cities are very tractable. So I guess just pushing back a bit on on some of those things. So, so, right, CCI, it's a nonprofit and I think pretty famously nonprofits aren't seen as these things that scale all that well, at least when you compare them to the tech sector. So how does uh, an organization like CCI actually scale an idea like this? Sure. So what I think of a startup, right, typically startups are thought of as technology companies where the defining feature is basically you have a zero marginal cost product where you develop a product, you get product market fit. And then once you have that, you just go to the moon. So the sort of famous example is Mark Zuckerberg with with Facebook. But once you have Facebook, the cost of adding additional user is like, I don't know, five cents in server space, but it's it's, it's practically zero. So once you have the Facebook platform, you can uh, scale up super rapidly. But I don't think that's really the only way to understand startups. So startups are anything that that scales quickly. And so if you look at, for example, the entertainment industry with movies, what is a movie production, right? Somebody has an idea, they write a script or they bring some people together and then that script gets taken up by a producer and then they hire actors and then they get a director and then they right, put together the whole team, the editors, the video shooters. Right? I mean, I, I have no idea how you make a movie, but like there's, you, you see the credits at the end and there's a lot of people on the credits and all of those people are basically on contract work for this individual movie. So it basically goes from ideation, here's the idea to, right, we shoot a movie to premiering in, I don't know, a two to three year period. I mean, sometimes these scripts float around a little bit longer, but like from actual, like, all right, let's push this forward to it premieres, that that is a relatively short uh, time horizon. And you can see movies, right? They gross hundreds of millions of dollars. If you think about, for example, elections, elections are also startups, right? During a presidential election, each uh, party might raise like a total of $1 billion in terms of, right, like direct spending, in terms of affiliated spending, et cetera. And so within kind of an 18 month period from the announcement of candidacy to the election itself, right, they raise up million do- billion dollars and then they spend all that money to, right, like, coordinate this vast number of people, right? Campaigns at their peak probably employ thousands of people around the country. And so it is this massive coordination of scaling up. And there are all of these uh, people and individuals who are specialized in various areas that you can tap to make sure you run an effective campaign. And so, okay, how does, right, I guess, CCI scale? And this is a conversation I've been having with with folks in, in Silicon Valley. It's not, right, like a lot of think tanks in DC do not scale. So if you're working on, I don't know, social security reform, right, it's basically trench warfare or healthcare reform, where like you write a bunch of policy papers, they write a bunch of policy papers, you move the the margin a little bit, you like, all right, like go to the next trench and then you lose the next election cycle, your people lose the next next election cycle and you're pushed back two trenches. And like over the long term, there, there's very little progress. Uh, even with Obamacare, right, the U.S. healthcare system is still basically broken. And the, what makes, I think, Charter Cities different is that it is pretty possible, it is pretty easy to envision a future in five years, in 10 years, 
where there are charter cities being built. I mean, there are charter cities being built now, but there are hundreds of thousands, low millions of people living in charter cities where there is the legal infrastructure. There are these administrative structures that have been created to govern charter cities where there is widespread acceptance, where there is widespread interest in charter cities. And so, I mean, I don't know, Genghis Khan maybe isn't the best example. If you look at Genghis Khan, what he did before he went out to basically conquer the largest landmass empire ever is he basically spent, depending on how you want to count, like 10 plus years rounding up all the tribes in Mongolia and basically uniting them under his banner. And so this is somewhat, I don't know, semi-analogous in the sense that, right, you need to put all the pieces in place. You need to get all the stakeholders together. You need to get this general belief. But once all of this is in place, then it's possible to really scale up very rapidly in terms of implementing charter cities. And so in practice, what that means is, right, over the last, I started the Charter Cities Institute almost three years ago. Every year we get more charter city developments approaching us. The first year we got some, like, I don't know, most of the developments were like half crazy. Where it's like, yeah, in this sort of, I don't know, geographically contested region where this tribe is like semi-seceded from this the, the central government, right? We want to build a charter city. And it's like, okay, that is not realistic. Like, how do you build a city when like the central government won't let you import a water filter for your <laughs> like water treatment plant? Yeah, but now the projects we're getting are much more serious. It's like we have 10,000 hectares. We have acquired the land. We have government buy-in. The governor of the state is going and pitching us our project investment promotion conferences, right? We have a very clear master plan. We have X, we have Y. Uh, some of the projects are earlier stage where it's like we have 10,000 hectares and we've been thinking about what it means to build a city. They don't really know what to do, but we've seen that I guess the level of interest, the level of seriousness of the projects that we are engaging with has increased substantially. And we believe that especially as we see some wins start to rack up. I mean, arguably the world's first charter city was announced, uh, Prospera, three, four months ago in Honduras, where, okay, they have created all right, a legal system from scratch. And it's not really fully developed. It's still relatively early, but that's a very substantial step forward compared to what we've seen the previous 10 years. And as we see projects do successful fundraises, as we've seen projects start to get residents, as we see projects, right, like create business registries, create labor law and start enforcing them, as we see this, the court cases sort of pile up to set a degree of precedent that like, okay, these laws are stable, they're not going to be changed at a whim, etc. Um, as we get buy-in from politicians, from international development community, right, this allows allows everything to scale very rapidly. And this is kind of what the Charter Cities Institute is doing, is developing a strategy that allows for this very rapid scaling of charter cities. And so, right, as I previously mentioned, historically, charter cities were often like single projects, whereas like, I'm going to go to Madagascar to start a charter city. And what we are trying to do is create this network, is create this knowledge, is create this uh, set of best practices, where once the information is out in the ether, where once there are firms who you know, who you can easily tap into for master planning, who you can easily tap into for construction, who you can easily tap into for financing, right? It's possible not just to get one or two projects started, it's possible to get a dozen projects started, because all of the expertise are in place. All you really need at that point is the local knowledge of the local system, right? Like what is necessary? What industry should you target? Right? How do you talk to government? And all those things are extremely difficult on their own. Like I don't want to trivialize that. But then once you add in like funding, once you add in like master planning, once you add in governance structure, right, like then it becomes a, a really Herculean task. And if we can simplify that and just focus it on the particulars for local countries, then it's possible to get 
five, six really serious charter cities projects started every year. And that's when, right, like that's when you're taking, okay, you can target like we want 3%, we want 5% of new urban residents annually. And mind you, 5% of annual new urban residents is that's like 4 million people, right? That's a mm. lot of people who might be moving in into areas where it just gives them a much better opportunity at, at a better life. Mm-hmm. So what I'm getting at is like, in essence, the, the plan to to scale it drives a lot from solving a very monumental coordination challenge. Yeah, yeah, it is. How do you get all of the pieces in place? How do you sequence the the conversations? How do you sequence level of interest? How do you sequence the resource is necessary? How do you right like get this this broad buy in to make all these changes? And it is this yeah it is this monumental coordination challenge. But I think we've we've made very solid progress. I mean, just thinking about it internally, the conversations we were having like. Two years ago, a year and a half ago, if you listen to the 80,000 Hours podcast with Rob Wibbland, it was still like then it was like, here is this like, fairly high level thing, right? The strategy was generally etched out. But now if you look at what we're doing, it's much more particular in terms of the problems we're solving. And so there has been a huge amount of progress that has been made. There's a bunch of work that needs to be done. But it's, it's I don't know, it's, it's at least very clear to me that we're moving strongly in the right direction. And it's just a question of how can we move even faster? Re-listening to that podcast, I think you, if I'm quoting right, said something along the lines of, I don't know what I'm doing. So I think that, <laughs> that has broadly changed over the course of the past year and a half. So I guess w- the, one more thing along the um, effective altruism movement. So around, right, around the neglected this thing, you know, a former, well, a Nobel laureate has worked on this uh, problem. A big time investor, one of the most famous investors on the planet, Peter Thiel, has worked on this problem kind of adjacently. So does that kind of push against the argument of neglect- neglectedness there? Well, neither of them are really working on it now. So no, <laughs> they both did not succeed. Um, <laughs> so no. Fair enough. I guess so on that, that is a good segue into like the history of this space. So do you want to go over that a bit? I know People tend to think it all starts with Romer and his TED Talk in 2009. Do you agree with that? Does it start before that? Give us a little overview. Sure. Well, no, not really. I mean, it starts with like human history. Cities have been a constant in human history. And like, right, cities, the kind of initial understanding of a city was that it would have different governance from the hinterland, that the rules in the city would be different. You would have specialized structures. You would have recognizable like open spaces, public gathering, markets, temples, right? Like administrative buildings. And you would not see these in urban areas in the kind of pre-modern area. And so that initial difference in governing structure really defined almost what a a city was as they first emerged. And then as you got states, as you got empires, right? Like then sometimes the cities were like subsumed by the states or empires, or sometimes they became like the central nucleus, which then created the the state or the empire. But you would always have had throughout human history, like these um, autonomous or semi-autonomous cities that had uh, differing degrees of self-governance that were focused on trade, that were focused on industry. And so, right, like the, the idea of free cities, of, of charter cities has really been, I don't know, with us throughout human history. It's a, a very old form of social organization. That being said, the I don't know modern idea of charter cities kind of to me I see it coming from these two separate strands. One is Paul Romer, who did right like I would say semi independently independently develop the idea of charter cities with the TED Talk in two thousand nine that really gave it the the sort of modern focus of like 
what it is. And obviously he different, he was different from us in that he argued for a high income country to act as the uh, guarantor in a low income country. And we are advocating for a public private partnership. But the fundamentals were, were relatively similar of how do you create good rules in places that don't have good rules to spur economic growth. The other intellectual tradition comes from what might be described as kind of the techno libertarians. And so this goes back a little bit further. Uh, you have in the 70s, even late 60s, I believe, uh, groups like Operation Atlantis, the Republic of Minerva. They were both uh, sponsored by Werner Stiefel, who was a uh, Jew who escaped the Nazis and created a successful cosmetics business. But then he believed that the US was going down the same path as Nazi Germany, so wanted to create a, a society where it would not go down that path. And they focused on in Operation Atlantis. They um, put a bunch of sand on a reef in the uh, Caribbean and then got chased off by a gunboat from the dictator of Haiti and that failed. Uh, Republic of Minerva was somewhat similar in the Pacific. They found a reef, they put some sand on it, and they were chased off by a gun gunboat from the the, the governor, the, the president of Tonga. And so both of those were much more like I don't know, extreme ideas, but it was kind of this like build a new society, uh, that kernel that had some analogies to the charter city space. And that kind of went down, ended up with with a kind of seasteading. Patrick Friedman, if you listen to the podcast with uh, Patrick Friedman, the Charter Cities podcast episode, right? It's interesting because he's like sort of was inspired by those initial attempts, was also kind of reacting against them to develop a more sane and a more practical proposal, which was seasteading. And um, that was focused more on like, how do you push the frontier? How do you create these high income, right? How do you attract really the, the, the high human capital, the high labor intensive or high, high human capital, high productivity folks? One of the kind of I don't know, sayings in the Seasteading Institute was the U.S. runs on code that is like 240 years old. So how, how, how do you push that frontier? But right, there was still that similarity in that it was like, how do you build this, this new kind of governed independently, semi-independently governed city, even if it was focused on, on the waters and focused on kind of a different demographic than Paul Romer's version of Tartar Cities are. And over the last 10 years or so, those kind of visions have like somewhat merged where Patrick Friedman's fund, for example, is focusing on charter cities. It's focusing on emergent markets. Charter cities are seen as, right, like, okay, look, even if like seasteading is your ultimate goal, even if it is the high income folks, right, like pushing the frontier, that's just not practical at this time. So let's focus on where it is practical. And there, there has been this kind of, I don't know, I don't know, merging of visions, building of a small community that that draws from these intellectual roots that is now pushing the idea of charter cities uh, generally. And the way I think that the unique value add for CCI, for the Charter Cities Institute, is that we do have this very, what might be called big tent approach, where our, our hypothesis is kind of charter cities are an idea whose time has come, right? Look, we can talk to the people who already believe in this idea, but that's kind of boring. Let's explicitly go out. Let's explicitly try to build a coalition. Let's explicitly try to activate this much wider pool of resources that is out there that cares about governance, that cares about poverty, that cares about urbanization, that cares about global warming, that cares about these things. And let's figure out how charter cities can interact with their existing goals to right, like have this I don't know, very broad impact on, on the world. And so I guess just just on the the seasteading I guess movement and and Romer's version of the charter cities concept you kind of went over them broadly but what have we learned one was in seasteading started in 2008 Romer's uh, TED talk was in 2009 it's been just over a decade what have we learned since so I think with Romer's TED talk what we learned was several things one is Romer's vision where you have a high income country act as a guarantor is very difficult to get political buy in. 
Uh, and so that's part of the reason why we've pursued the PPP model. The other reason is just that high income countries aren't as well governed as we thought, right? Like the US, we currently can't travel to Europe without quarantining ourselves <laughs> because we are unable to handle COVID. And so building new institutions rather than trying to transplant institutions, I think is the is the right move for a, a number of reasons. The other important thing that I think is sometimes lost is that Romer was tremendously successful, at least in generating ideas and in generating some movement, right? He went to Madagascar, he was meeting with the president, he went to Honduras, he helped change the law in Honduras, he helped change the constitution in Honduras before before things fell apart. And I think Romer is sometimes, I don't know, unfairly sort of denigrated because people don't realize what a, a monumental accomplishment that was. And nobody else, nobody in the movement kind of since has given a TED talk, for example. And so he was able to really start the conversation, even though it wasn't sustained, that was still something that like, to a certain extent, we haven't like yet reached those peaks. I think the foundation is much stronger now than it was then, but the peaks there were still higher than today. I think the other part is, right, he goes to Madagascar, he goes to Honduras, neither of those work out, and then everything kind of falls. And so what CCI is focused on is building this broader ecosystem, is, right, like making sure the space, the movement is not dependent on a single person or a single country, right? If I get hit by a bus, CCI will still, like, go on. Hopefully, I don't know if it's hopefully as successfully as before, hopefully not as successfully as before. <laughs> I don't know which is, I don't know, more more science, kind of gratifying to my ego, but right, like it, it will continue to exist, right? There are a set of people who care passionately about this idea. There are a set of networks, there are a set of relationships. So the, the idea will continue. Second is, right, this idea of building out this broader network of having this big tent of trying to activate this broader set of resources where Romer was really trying to focus on like, I don't know, just do one and 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 kind of figure it out in a certain sense a much more kind of entrepreneurial approach but also a much higher risk approach where when they weren't successful there was no further kind of leverage to activate and then as for what we've learned from i think seasteading is kind of several things so one <laughs> building floating platforms is really expensive and not practical with current levels of technology Two is if you look at Seasteading's branding, it's also, I think, sort of substantially improved over the last 10 years, right? Before, first it was, let's build floating cities, mostly targeting like high income, high productivity people. Now they're focusing on Pacific islands. They're focusing on, right, like how to fight global warming, how to help uh, Pacific islands that otherwise might see challenges with, with higher sea levels to provide solutions to them. I think a third is just in terms of, right, like, Focusing on, I don't know, maybe the, the, the kind of practicality of it. And I think that might be another major contribution of of CCI, or maybe major contribution is the wrong word, just like major emphasis of, of CCI is to focus on, right, like what are sort of practical intermediate steps? It's very easy to step back and say, hey, let's do a city, right? A lot of people are saying like building a city would be cool, but it's a different thing to actually like work backwards from that. And like, what are the intermediate steps you can take on a day by day, week by week, month by month basis to actually make this a, a reality. And I think what hopefully CCI has, has contributed to is actually really breaking that down on a granular level to have all of these intermediate steps to build up momentum, to build up a network that makes this broader um, ambition possible. Mm -hmm. So, I guess most cities in history, right? They're they're the product of uh, emergent kind of individual choices. Uh, they're the result of human action, uh, but not human design. Having said that, though, there have been cities in history that have been kind of planned in some way or another. So have, they have been designed. Do you want to go over that history and what what do they have to say about charter cities today? 
Sure. So, right. I mean, we can think of if we're going reaching far back, Alexandria, it was founded by Alexander the Great. I mean, he founded a bunch of cities called Alexandria, but the one we remember today is in Egypt. That was a um, very important city in the Mediterranean for centuries. I had the Library of Alexander, which is one of kind of the, I don't know if it was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, but like metaphorically, at least it was in terms of a repository of knowledge. If you read history of the Roman Empire, Alexandria and Egypt more broadly was kind of the crown jewel after Rome and maybe Constantinople, but it was really up there. Uh, so when Augustus got in a fight with, uh, what's the guy's name? Cleopatra, Mary Cleopatra, and he was Caesar's right-hand man. Brutus? No, Bruce killed Caesar. Ant Antony? Mark Anthony. Yeah, there we go. Mark Anthony. Um, right. He went to Alexandria. That's where he built his power base while Augustus built his uh, power base in Rome. So that was a fairly successful city. Then we also have uh, St. Petersburg, which in some ways was, was quite successful, right? It did, it was uh, founded by uh, Peter the Great. And he was like, all right, I want to kind of modernize Russia. I want to focus on Europe. He went to Amsterdam to learn how to build ships. And St. Petersburg was to a certain extent modeled in Amsterdam with a lot of canals. Uh, it was a new port that uh, would be frozen a lot less of the year than their previous uh, port. And right, it, it was a capital of Russia for a long period. It also, uh, I mean, did help because it did allow for kind of more penetration of European ideas into Russia, which ended up causing like several revolutions in, in Russia, or at least almost revolutions. So it did lead to this broader instability. But that was like what Peter wanted when he started it. He wanted this broader exposure to Europe, this broader exposure to these ideas, because that's how he thought uh, Russia would modernize. Right now, St. Petersburg, I believe it's like, it's one of the fourth, maybe fifth biggest cities in Europe, right? It, it just as, as it, in terms of population, it's actually quite impressive. And I think those are at least, right, like if we're thinking historically, some of the, the really successful projects that have, right, we, we still remember today that, that have made an imprint on human consciousness. And then in terms of uh, master plan cities today, right, you, you kind of cited Wade Shepard's uh, work uh, around 200 master plan cities today. I think you'd mentioned Forest City in Malaysia. Do we, uh, or I should say the charter city space, have uh, some lessons to learn from these projects? Sure. Most of the master plan cities today are not very good. So this is one of the main challenges of building a city is that you need to kind of balance order and a kind of evolutionary growth. And oftentimes, particularly in emerging markets, they fall way, they, they underemphasize order. And so you basically have slums that have very little, right? Like the, the, the roads are unclear, the public spaces are unclear, public goods are unclear, uh, services are almost non-existent. And so they kind of fall way too far on the like disorder side. On the other hand, the master plan cities tend to fall way too much on the on the order side. So I was in a meeting, for example, on a planning uh, project in, in Kazakhstan, a new city development being based around airport. And there was a discussion like, okay, we can build a financial center here, or we can build it here. We can have tall buildings, we can have medium sized buildings. And to me, I was just like, this discussion is insane, right? Like yesterday, we were moving the city like 20 miles to the east. And now we're talking about how tall the buildings are going to be in the financial district, right? Who even wants to co move to Kazakhstan to start a financial center, right? Why wouldn't you go to Dubai? Why wouldn't you go to London? And so there was this, I think, degree of, I don't know, lack of, of, of realism among the, the planners. And I think this is, this is a pretty constant theme. So if you look at where a lot of the master plan cities are being built, 
right? Some of them are government projects and governments are able to build new cities because they don't have the same budget constraints as private companies and because they can just force all of the bureaucrats to go live in the new capital city. The challenge is that you end up with cities that sometimes look like Brasilia, where if you, uh, I believe his name is Oscar Niemeyer, he is the architect of Brasilia, and you can actually read some quotes. And he's like, do not tell me it is like a successful or failed city now. We will know if it's successful or failed in 1,000 years. Because he basically wants like <laughs> historians to go back and look at, archaeologists to go back and look at the ancient ruins and be like, these are some awesome buildings. <laughs> it's just like- He likes to look for like a bird from above, right? Yeah, yeah like yeah. what? Like, no, okay, you're going to ignore the people who are actually living in the city now because you want some like archaeologists to go and say these are awesome buildings? Like that is like literally his attitude. It's, it's, it's I don't know, kind of horrifying. And like Brasilia, just like from a simple metric, the commuting times of the lower income people are much higher than like any other city in Brazil, just because- because it was poorly planned and designed. That there is very uh, poor public transportation. There's very poor walkability. It's designed around cars. So, and the other I think challenge is one, right? Like the feedback loop on cities is just so long. So, okay, look, you hire an architect. What do you do if you're building a new city and you have way too much money? Like you're in the Middle East, you have way too much money, you're building a city. Okay, so what do you do? You hire an architect. Where do you go? You go to MIT, you go to Harvard, right? You go to the fanciest people. And these architects and these urban planners, they're very good at doing like single city blocks. So they're like, okay, I can do a single city block and I've read Jane Jacobs, like make it walkable, like make the interactions and blah, blah, blah. And now you want me to build a city. Okay, this is awesome. So what is a city? A city is just a thousand city blocks. So I'm just going to do one city block and then do it a thousand times. And they don't realize that that's not really how a city works. But they keep getting called because the feedback loop is so long, right? You plan a city and then it's not start to be built. Like they don't actually break ground for two years. They don't actually see the results for like eight years, for 10 years. And so by the time people are actually looking at the results of what is happening in the city, right? Like you're, you've already planned another like two or three projects. Mm-hmm. And and because it's so prestige based and it's the, the feedback loop is so, I don't know, like kind of broken, right? You get this community that advises these new city developments that just, I think, has very little connection with what it actually means to to do a new city. If you talk to the folks who are doing new cities in emerging markets where they don't have like infinitely deep pockets and where their approach is much more organic, where it is this kind of balancing of, okay, look, we need the public spaces, we need like the roads, we need the parks, but we don't really know what it's going to look like in 15 years. So we have to lead this like semi- it's semi-open, but defining exactly like what's open, what's known, what's not known, how it will evolve. Right? Like that's a really tricky balance to get right. And um, particularly with consultants who like don't have a long-term vested interest in the project and rarely get it right. I think most new cities are falling way too, master plan cities are falling way too heavily on the, the over-planning. And the just, order side. The of order side, spectrum. yeah. And yeah, yeah. are just not, not really pleasant places to live. Yeah. And we'll, um, Mark had a good podcast and discussion about this whole uh, order versus disorder, over planning versus under planning with uh, Alain Berteau of the Marin Institute in NYU. We'll stick a link to that. So I guess, I guess you went over some of the uh, drawbacks or challenges that master plan cities like Brasilia have uh, encountered. But right, there's obviously also a handful of uh, very successful semi autonomous. Uh, cities uh, in the post war era. What lessons can we learn from places like this, like Hong Kong, Dubai, Shenzhen, uh, Singapore? Sure. So, one of the lessons is that it's really hard. <laughs> you need a lot of luck um, and you need a good location. All right. There are some similarities, but there are probably more differences than similarities. The similarities are mostly that they had varying degrees of decision making rights over their governance structures. So, Singapore is a country. Dubai is part of the UAE, but it is very much self-governed. 
Um, Hong Kong was a British colony and uh, had a pretty strong degree of self-governance. And then Shenzhen was a special economic zone that uh, had a very strong degree of uh, self-governance. Beyond that, there are a lot of differences. So if we look at Hong Kong, right, they had the advantage of, okay, look, the, the British are relatively were kind of um, liberal in the in the classical sense, right? They had a hands-off approach. They allowed for general trade. They were were relatively broke until like the 60s. So they weren't even investing a lot in, in infrastructure, the, the Hong Kong government. They tried very hard to be a net taxpayer to the UK instead of a net um, kind of tax taker. So they would have more decision rights over the, the local governance. And they also had the benefit of the Chinese civil war occurring at the same time. So you basically had this mass migration of uh, particularly entrepreneurs from Shanghai, which was the commercial capital of of, of China, uh, mostly textile manufacturers who came and really started the textile manufacturing industry in Hong Kong. And then that textile manufacturing kind of slowly turned into um, electronics. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, like most of my toys at Christmas would say made in Hong Kong. Now they all say made in China. And that trans that right transform like created a lot of wealth, a lot of economic growth, and then it transformed itself into a financial capital when Shenzhen opened up, and there were much lower wages in Shenzhen and in Guangdong province. So they outsourced a lot of the they outsourced a lot of the manufacturing there, but became a, a kind of financial center based on the, the the British common law tradition. And so I think what is unique is that they did have a very laissez-faire pol- policy where there was not any like state-led industrialization. And if we look at Singapore, if we look at like uh, Korea, if we look at Japan, all of those had pretty heavy state involvement in industrialization. Hong Kong did not. So it is really a kind of libertarian success story, if you will. I think the other thing about Hong Kong is it does show the risk of what might be described as future expropriation, where now, as we're seeing, the Chinese government is cracking down on Hong Kong, is uh, limiting their freedoms. It's trying to keep the economic freedoms, but it's it's really severely limiting the, the political freedoms. And that's because uh, Beijing perceives a politically independent Hong Kong as a, a threat. And so it does kind of require us to keep in the back of our heads, okay, how can we minimize the probability of this future um, state expropriation to that would kind of reverse the gains. At the same time, if we can help create a city of 7 million people that right, like inspires a region of broader reforms and helps a lot of poverty alleviation, even if it does get crushed in 70 years, I'd still think, I don't know, I'd still be proud of that. So, okay, Singapore. Singapore is the only country in the world that didn't want to be a country. It was kicked out of Malaysia in 1965 after a failed merger. It had the benefit of um, being governed by Lee Kuan Yew, who was probably one of, if not the top statesman in the post-war era, who, after effectively consolidating authority in the People's Action Party, governed it. And they faced some immediate challenges. For example, the British military in believe 69, right, pulled out their base, which employed like 10 to 20% of all the Singaporeans. They had, um, Singapore is a multi-ethnic society. I think it's majority ethnic Chinese, like 80, but then they've got like Malays, they've got Indians, they've got some of the the British holdovers. They faced some race riots at, at a time. There's this interesting story when they were kind of worried about the Malaysians, so they they called up the the guard, and then at one point one of the lieutenants like dismissed all the all the, the guardsmen of uh, Malaysian heritage, and then they went out and rioted, and so like they went like uh, Lee Kuan Yew went back and said no 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 it's okay like you're welcome like even though you were rioting yesterday like get back in your guards uniform it's cool, and you read that story in his biography and it's like you're not sure whether he's telling the truth that like it was a mistake that they fired all of them and then they tried to cover it up or like it was a mistake, but it shows kind of, I don't know, the the chaos of this like 
early state formation and all of these like really well, seemingly intractable challenges that you face and, and how you overcome them. And then what do they do? They basically did several things. One, they had like very efficient, effective government. So they really recruited the best, the top people into government. Um, they would recruit um, Singaporeans who went to school in the US and the UK. They paid them very well. They focused on industrialization. So he saw his job as, all right, they, they looked at Israel, like how can Israel attract all this multinational talent? So they, like he saw his job as a CEO. He went and spent some years in the US, right? Was constantly pitching like, hey, come locate your company in Singapore. Come like build a factory in Singapore. Come do this. The, the state was pretty heavily involved in that industrialization process, building like an industrial park. Singapore consistently ranks like in the top one or two of the, the economic freedom of the world index. But right, like that's only by like the economic freedom standards. If you actually look at government involvement in the economy, it's it's like pretty substantive. Then you have Shenzhen and Shenzhen was to a certain extent, like the most chaotic of them all, like, right, Hong Kong was a British colony. So they had that, like, I don't know, historical legacy, Singapore had Lee Kuan Yew, and Shenzhen was, okay, right, Mao is dead, Deng Xiaoping takes over, and he's like, okay, we need to actually like build an economy and modernize, how do we do this? Well, we can't do this in Beijing, because that's going to annoy too many people, we can't do this in Shanghai, that's the commercial, that's the traditional commercial capital. And that is a kind of power center of the anti like communist party. We just chased all of our merchants out of Shanghai. Sorry, like Shenzhen is a backwater. He declared a special economic zone in 1980. Uh, and one, it's much more like a charter city than a special economic zone. It was 320 square kilometers. It was massive. There were a handful of fishing villages with a total population of about 100,000 people. They basically decentralized a substantial amount of authority. So unlike most special economic zones where it's like you have lower taxes, it was like, no, with the exception of, I believe it's like postal service and defense and maybe rail service, they're like the, the local government can basically do whatever they want. And they had no kind of plan. There was no visionary leader. It was just like the local leaders kind of like stumbling and trying to figure it out. And a pretty substantial like arbitrage opportunity with the rest of China. Yeah, and it, it, like it had this very strong I don't know base to come from in the sense that China has a long history of statehood, so people like kind of knew how to interact with government. You had this Mao had intentionally prevented urbanization from happening because he was afraid of getting invaded by the, the Soviets, and so he didn't want the Soviets to be able to like take over cities. And so there's this pent up demand for urbanization. You had across the border was was Hong Kong, so you did have this like administrative talent and this capital that could be instantly put to use. In five years, Shenzhen had the highest building in all of China. Mao visits in 84. And I believe it was in 84. There's a very good book called The, the Shenzhen Experiment, where he goes and he's talking to some like villagers. And he's like, wait, these villagers are like making more than my whole family. <laughs> like, what's going on here? <laughs> like, these are peasants. And there's also this interesting story where, where Deng Xiaoping goes to Singapore and meets Lee Kuan Yew. And he's like, oh, man, how did you get all of these like really smart Chinese who are really productive? And he's like, no, like their grandparents were peasants. It's just like they came here and we gave them better laws and now they are richer because they have better laws, right? It's not the people, it's it's the rules. And so, right, the, the kind of motto is it doesn't matter if it's a black or white cat so long as it catches the, the mouse or, right, like uh, feeling the, the stones in the river with your feet uh, to give the sense of, right, it's really kind of this trial and error experimentation. And so they pioneered reforms to labor law, they pioneered reforms to land, they pioneered reforms to state-owned enterprises, to banking law, to like everything that later foreign spread throughout investment. foreign direct investment, that later spread throughout the rest of China and and really catalyzed this, this huge economic growth, which has lifted about 850 million people out of poverty. And one of the interesting things is that you did see this right, like constant tension. The communist hardliners all wanted to like shut it down. They were like, no, this is too capitalist, this is bad. And so after Deng Xiaoping left power, 
right? He does a, a China tour, a Southern tour in 1992 when he is, he's like late 80s. He's pretty old. And right, he no, has no formal authority anymore, but his successor is like, hey, maybe I should like, eh, like, I don't know, Shenzhen, like maybe it shouldn't be a thing. And Deng Xiaoping just goes and he goes and he visits and he talks to them and it's reported and that's enough to really build the political support. Like, no, this is working. You need to double down on this. And Deng Xiaoping's biographer actually like says that Deng attributed this, this no, it was Deng Xiaoping's biographer who attributed this Southern tour to like the preservation of this, the like Shenzhen in 1992, which really shows how, I don't know, these sometimes, right, like decisions have these really long-term consequences. Like they, they, these, these decisions matter. And then Dubai, the last example, uh, it had, again, the advantage of a visionary leader. It had a good kind of uh, geography. So it's basically a desert and there's nothing in the desert. And their advantage was that Iran is very bad at ruling themselves. So in the late 1890s, right, uh, some Iranian port cities raised tariffs and Dubai was like, hey, guys, come and like hang out in Dubai and we won't charge you tariffs. And so they did. And this is in The City of Gold, which is a very good book about Dubai. And the first time they did this in like 1890 or so, it was like, yeah. And then like a dozen or two dozen traders came. It's like, okay, so this is like 1890. It's not that long ago. And it's enough to like mention like a dozen or two dozen traders. This is like a very small number of people. But that basically like is the kind of the seed of this, I don't know, regional arbitrage where they realized, okay, every time Iran does something stupid, every time one of our neighbors does something stupid, right, we can just like invite those people who have had negative consequences because of that bad policy to work here. And this Sheikh Rashid who took power in, I believe, 55. And right, he was is kind of the, the visionary responsible for creating modern Dubai. And the, the kind of model is massive infrastructure investment combined with taking advantage of regional mis mishaps. So like, all right, building like power. So you have electricity, building a massive port that's way bigger than all the analysts suggest. And then suddenly it's like at capacity much sooner than expected. Iran has uh, the Iranian revolution. So uh, it turns out that previously planes would stop in Tehran going west, east or east, west. And then uh, Dubai is like, hey, let's build a really big airport and have them stop here instead. When they built their airport, they had more parking spaces than there were cars in all of Dubai because it was like, all right, no, we're going to be this thing. We're going to bet on this future. OK, Lebanon, which Beirut used to be the financial center of the Middle East. OK, Lebanon is in a civil war. Maybe we should start attracting finance. Maybe we should start attracting investment. So basically played on this, right, like massive infrastructure projects, plus being a stable and cosmopolitan region in the Middle East when most of the rest of the Middle East was either not stable or not cosmopolitan. So if you visit Dubai, the people there are very proud. They're like, no, look, like you can be a Jew and like we don't really care. You can't really be Israeli, but you can be a Jew and we don't really care. We, you can uh, right, be a Christian. You can like do these things. When if you go to Saudi Arabia, for example, Saudi Arabia, everybody, every woman is like legally re required to wear a niqab. And so there is this kind of, I don't know, like broader acceptance. It's just like, look, do commerce, do business here. And like, we'll, we'll kind of keep our, our, our hands out of it. Uh, but here, here is a framework. The whole spreading liberalism thing that you talked yeah. about earlier. Yeah. So that's great. I mean, that's kind of provided high level demonstrations of how this idea could work in practice and some successes with the four you just went over as well as some uh, not so great successes in Brasilia. So I guess that is a good uh, transition into common criticisms or drawbacks of the idea. So I'll just ask that generally first, what, what would you say are the biggest kind of weaknesses of the idea of charter cities? So I can give you the common criticisms. I don't think they're actually weaknesses. I think one of the ways that gives me confidence that I think we are correct is that the vast majority of criticisms we get, I think, 
are actually based on misunderstandings. So there was an article published in the American Conservative about like how charter cities are high modernism. And it's like, no, we don't actually believe that. Mm -hmm. Like we can talk with you and I think that you will be convinced of our idea or like charter cities will only target the rich. It's like, no, we are specifically figuring out how to develop a like model that targets like low income folks. So I think the the probably most common criticisms that we get are, isn't this neocolonialism? And then two, aren't these just for the rich? And the answer is uh, no, we're working with partners in the host countries, right? We need to partner on the ground. We need the government to say yes, and people need to move there, right? The colonialism was bad because it had guns. Um, like it said, you do this or we are going to shoot you. Mm. We are coming in upon invitation and we have, there's like these three layers of, I don't know, voluntariness. Both the company has to invite us, the host country has to invite us, and then the people have to choose to move there. And I think it's, it's it's I don't know, conflating that with like showing up with a bunch of guns and 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 shooting people if they don't do what you want. I think those are two substantial, there's a pretty substantial difference. And then with regards to, aren't these just enclaves for the rich? Some cities are going to be, and some charter cities, like we are seeing some projects that are focusing primarily on upper income residents. But if you just think about it, uh, right, Toyota, for example, sells more cars than Mercedes. It has a higher market cap than Mercedes. Why? Because selling cars to the vast majority of people tends to be relatively profitable. The most popular car in the world is the Corolla. And so we believe that one, there is a kind of market demand for cities that charter cities that cater to lower income elements. And then two, just as an organization, we are explicitly doing this where we're developing urban planning guidelines that are very explicitly targeting, right? Like an income segment that is much lower than most of the cities that are being built around the world today. And I guess like another thing that uh, if you think about yourself choosing whether to move you and, and your family to uh, this new place, I would imagine like at the beginning when there's very few people, I don't have much of incentive to move myself and my family. So how do you think about, is there a criticism there that you commonly get? Uh, how do you get those first movers in, in the first place? Why do I why do I want to move there in the first place? Yeah, so I do think that that's definitely a common, I don't know. I'm not sure even it's a criticism because most of the crit- critics don't think that far ahead. <laughs> um, but that is, I think, one of the major challenges of uh, charter cities is, right, how do you overcome this coordination problem? How do you actually get that critical mass of people to move to an area that uh, can kind of jumpstart economic activity? If you think about cities, there tends to be uh, three ways to build one. One, you can be a government, in which case you can, right, like force your bureaucrats to move there. That's Brasilia, that's Abuja, that's Asana. Two, you can, uh, there can be an economic reason. So maybe it, right, if you think about Chicago, it has this being advantageous of you can get from Chicago to the Atlantic or you can go all the way down the Mississippi. So you basically have access to like America's hinterland and then you have access to both the Gulf of Mexico as well as Europe via the Atlantic. So it really is at the center of this broad trade network, right? New York is on the Hudson, like San Francisco is on the San Francisco Bay. Building within these kind of natural trading networks tends to be uh, a central feature of, of kind of human settlement, as well as the other like big one tends to be mining towns where somebody might find gold or find copper or something and enough people move there that even when the gold or copper runs out, there still is enough economic activity to continue to sustain itself over time. And then the third and kind of final reason is you can start a religion. So this is Salt Lake City in Utah. This is right like sort of Israel, where how do you coordinate? You have people with a strong identity. It doesn't have to be a religion per se, but it has to be like a strong cultural identity, which says, all right, we will move to X and coordinate and all kind of move there to ensure that something happens. And it's almost always in those cases, it's it's because of some degree of persecution where right this identity is unique enough that they feel persecuted, 
by their, some, most of the time they are being persecuted, not just a feeling, by their surrounding region. They say, okay, let us set up a society, let us set up somewhere to live where we have this identity and right, we can govern ourselves and not be persecuted. And yeah, this is, this is definitely very tricky. The way we think about this with charter cities is, okay, if you, let's build, instead of building in the middle of nowhere, build two hours outside of an existing city, outside of an existing population center. This has two advantages. One, you can piggyback off their infrastructure. So you don't need to spend hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars on an airport, on a port, because you have access to that existing infrastructure. Two is that you can piggyback off their labor market. Two hours is enough to get cheap land to really right, like get enough land to build a city, but it's close enough that you can, people from the city can go there work for a day. That they, right, like it's not really in commuting distance, but it's close enough that it's like almost doable, at least in the initial like phases until you get a sufficient population mass to really uh, develop. So, I mean, you talked about the kind of persecution starting a starting a charter city as a result of a religion or or an identity group being persecuted from the host country and then right you alluded to the this kind of similar thing happening in Hong Kong today with the CCP coming in and and trying to enforce uh, this this national security law on Hong Kong so on that broader topic how do you prevent that right how do you prevent the host country in this case at China from expropriating a jurisdiction that previously had autonomy Sure. So there's no silver bullet to, for this, but there are a few ways that you can minimize the risk. So Paul Romer, it was, okay, if you have a guarantor country, then right, it's it's basically bound international law and Honduras is not going to want to invade Canada, which is would be legally doing if there was a, a, a city that Canada was administering in Honduras. Our approach is a little bit different. Our idea is, right, you want to align all of the incentives. So this might mean the city gives a equity stake to the state government, an equity stake to the national government to, right, you get kind of business leaders and other leaders in the community to invest in the early stages, either directly in the city development company or to build factories in the city itself. You might want to list the city on a local stock market. Why? Because then people might buy the, the stock, pension funds would buy the stock and pension funds tend to be politically powerful. You want a lot of, right, there, there's this kind of, I don't know, perception in some circles that charter cities are about exit, but they're really not about exit qua like just picking up and leaving. They they need to be embedded in the local and in the regional community because otherwise they they will not be sustainable over a long time horizon. Exit is only really possible if you have an overwhelming uh, technological superiority or superiority of force that you can choose to ignore the, the interests of the broader region and like charter cities don't and doesn't want to have that. Uh, so you, you do really need to be Right, embedded within the broader region. And then if the broader region is benefiting from charter cities, then uh, we think that that is probably a good thing. The, the The real challenge is not economically, but politically, right? If the charter city is seen as a threat to it politically. So in China, what's happening is the, the kind of Chinese um, narrative, uh, Beijing's narrative, is that because of China's unique history, right, China needs authoritarianism. And like democracy is a Western idea. It's not a universal idea. And Hong Kong, to a certain extent, proves that wrong because Hong Kong is democratic and Hong Kong has free speech and shows that, no, like these aren't Western ideas. These are universal ideas. And you can imagine this in emerging markets, for example, if you have a charter city that is in one, like a lot of uh, emerging markets, uh, they have different kind of ethnic groups. And so if the charter city is in the region of one ethnic group and not the others, then this might disrupt the equilibrium 
uh, the, the political equilibrium and need to retaliation against the, the city in the future. So if you're developing a charter city uh, in a country that has like three dominant uh, ethnic groups, you might want to ensure that either all three of those ethnic groups have equal access to the charter city or that you develop three charter cities in their respective regions. So make sure that it doesn't like upset the long-term political equilibrium to kind of minimize the risk that the, the government decides to act against it at a future time. And so I guess semi-relatedly to this, right, because you're talking about uh, a government coming and expropriating or a general political instability, I would imagine that like middle or higher income countries have a little more political stability. So why not Why not focus on starting charter cities in these places? Open to it. Again, high income countries don't really have the demographics. Uh, middle income countries, yeah, open to it, depending on what the demographics are. I mean, Right. It's much more easy to attract people when there is the urban population growing than to attract people to move from existing urban populations. Even if you look at like SF, which is seeing kind of the biggest exodus of any city in the U.S. in the last, I don't know, few decades. Right. What are the absolute numbers of people moving away from SF over the next like two, three, four, let's say five years? Or the population of the Bay Area, the greater Bay Area is probably like three, four million people. The tech workers there are probably like optimistically make up 10%. So let's say 400,000 people, right? How many of the tech workers are in move? Let's say 20% of the tech workers. So, right, that is basically 80,000 people. And now how many of them can you actually capture? If you're capturing 10% of them, right, like of the tech workers who are moving, which I think is probably, again, somewhat optimistic, you're capturing 8,000 people, right? And so those numbers are just way too small to actually build a, a city around. If you're talking about middle-income countries, some middle-income countries do, might have the demographics, so I looked at Ecuador briefly. I think they have an initial like five or six million urban residents over the next 30 years. So you could do a city with like a half million people there if you're capturing like 20% of the new urban residents. So some some middle income countries do do have that right mix. But and we would be interested in looking at them. So for the listeners, our model is right, like if you are a new city developer and you are interested in the charter city model, or if you are a very large landowner and you are interested in the charter city model, we're happy to, or if you're a government and you're interested in the charter city model, we're happy to have a conversation and, and kind of see where that goes and, and how we could be of assistance. And then I, I guess maybe just continuing on the criticism or weaknesses point. So there may be someone that says, you know, if you're drawing a lot of the population from the host country at large, aren't these aren't you going to encounter similar problems that the host country at large uh, faces because you're getting the same folks, you're getting the same right culture, you're getting the same background, education levels as the host country. So uh, why would things necessarily change if that's the case? So I would, I guess, break this down into to two aspects. One is the governing the city government body itself, the city government. And then two is the people. And so one, if you look at right? People tend to respond to incentives. So culture is important. Culture does matter. And we should be realistic about, I guess, expectations. Shenzhen going from a fishing village, a series of fishing villages with 100,000 residents to being a world-class city in 40 years will probably be never be repeated. That being said, you could go from nothing to in 40 years to a middle-income city of 2 million people or 3 million people, right? That is very achievable depending on the country, depending on the context. Second, Right. If you listen to the podcast we did with with I did with Judah Moore, uh, he talks about this cultural change in Liberia, where they basically managed to get people to start obeying parking laws. How do they do it? If you parked illegally, you got jackbooted, and they also jackbooted the ministers who parked illegally. 
there was a study that looked at illegal parking again in, in New York for diplomats uh, before and after, before they were had diplomatic immunity. Afterwards, New York City revoked it. And before they had diplomatic immunity, uh, Sweden never parked illegally. And when they did, they would always pay the fines, even though they were not legally obligated to pay the fines. Nigeria parked illegally very frequently, Nigerian diplomats. And when they were ticketed, they very rarely paid the fines, if ever. Uh, New York City changed that and so started requiring the payment of fines. What happened was the Swedes' behavior did not change very much. Uh, the Nigerian behavior changed substantially. They stopped parking uh, illegally. And when they did park illegally, they paid the fines because there were serious consequences to not paying the fines. And so it is definitely, I think, challenging to right, like have these, I don't know, cultural changes. But it, it is possible if you think about, for example, uh, to, to, to implement them. So if you think about, for example, Walmart in the U.S. versus in, let's say, Mexico, right? Mexico probably has slightly higher corruption rates than the U.S. Walmart in Mexico probably is uh, what we might describe as slightly more corrupt. There's slightly more employee theft. There's slightly more things like that than in American Walmarts. But that increased rate of corruption in Walmart is probably much lower than the increased rate of corruption in the Mexican government versus the U.S. government. And why is that? It's because private companies have different incentive structures than public companies. And so with the, the the new city developer, they will have a different incentive structure. And because of that, I think we can expect them to have a strong incentive to root out corruption in the city government where it happens and to right minimize the uh, cost of that. Two, corruption, I don't know, it's not as bad as most people think. Most people think like, oh, corruption is the reason that most countries don't develop. But the U.S. was corrupt as hell in the 19th century, right? Tammany Hall, everybody knows that. I mean, even if you look at the 1960s, right? I mean, LBJ stole the election. Um, it's kind of common knowledge. And things were very corrupt. Even now, some cities, right, Chicago, every third mayor, every second mayor ends up in prison because of a corruption probe. And we look at China. China is, is was very corrupt, is still pretty corrupt, and has managed to develop. And then the second part is how do you, I don't know, all right, like create the culture in in the people in the city. And this is, I think, somewhat more difficult. If you we look at companies, a lot of companies have a very strong focus on creating a company culture. Why? Because how do you enforce, right, like certain behaviors when there is no monitoring mechanism? And it's right, you get this, I don't know, this identity, this belief, and this is kind of the right way to act. And in a company, you can fire people who don't abide by those cultural norms. In a city, you can't really ask those people to leave. So this can, right, you can kind of seed a culture in, in a number of ways in terms of who the first residents are, who you target to move there, how you kind of reward certain behaviors, how you punish other behaviors, how you create these kind of common rituals and these common practices. And you can encourage this broader, I don't know, like focus on, focus on long-termism, focus on hard work, focus on these kind of bourgeoisie cultures that do lead to higher rates of savings, that rates to lead to more investment, that lead to more economic growth and better outcomes o over the uh, a longer time horizon. Great. So I guess moving on to focus on, you know, the actual building and implementation aspect of charter cities and what it means to, to build a city in practice. So reading through CCI's materials, especially, you know, the website, and there's a recent uh, kind of broad introduction to charter cities written by our colleague, Jeff Mason and yourself. And it kind of broke down the process into, I guess, six main things, one being governance, second policies, then urban planning, site selection, selecting an anchor tenant, and then minimizing the risk of expropriation. So let's let's dive into some of these aspects. So first, I guess the governance piece, one of the things that was focused on was really getting as much devolved and decentralized political authority as possible. So I guess, how do you go about that given you, you know, typically host countries and central governments don't like devolving power? 
So, I mean, this is part of the broad, I guess, uh, social change that the Charter Cities Institute is trying to accomplish. How do you convince these countries? And it's sometimes it's by going and pitching them. We are working with some projects that are talking directly to the host country to try to get a set of concessions and basically saying, look, if you give us these concessions, we will bring over X amount of money and invest it. Um, other countries, uh, Honduras, for example, implemented these reforms in the immediate Zelaya kind of post quote unquote coup era. So there was a, right, like, I guess, desperation in that the country was was not doing very well and wanted to try big, bold ideas to get it back on the right track. In Nigeria, we are working within the existing special economic zone framework and seeing how far we can adjust that framework to apply more to a city because it was designed for industrial parks, not for cities. And so what we're trying to do is change the general conversation where, okay, if a minister sees or a president sees like, oh, our neighbor did it, our neighbor did this, like we're better than our neighbor, so we can do this too. Or, oh, right, an entrepreneur or a city developer goes to talk to that minister or that president and says, hey, I want to build a charter city. And then the president like says, oh, I read about that last week in The Economist, or I read about that last week in The Financial Times, right? It just makes that entire set of conversations much easier, where then if you've got the administrators, the bureaucrats in the special economic zone program who say, yeah, I went to the special economic zone conference like two months ago and they mentioned charter cities. That was a cool idea. So I wanted to figure out how we can make our special economic zones more like charter cities. So it is kind of part of this, like getting the idea in all these different places, be making it part of the conversation, making it a little bit more accessible, a little bit more understandable to the key decision makers to help them be interested and and, and move move that way. And so is right. So we kind of made this distinction over, I guess, distinction earlier. Governance is how you change the rules over time. And then policies is one step down from that. What are the rules at a given period of time? So having said that, what policies is CCI kind of putting forth for charter cities to enact? I don't know. You're writing the (laughs) governance handbook. Tell me what's going on. What policies are we telling people to adopt? I feel like, you know, you it, we're focusing on you, Mark. You got to you got to finish it out. <laughs> I mean, we're basically trying to aggregate best practices. So the governance handbook will probably be out this winter. He's <laughs> but, looking at me. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Uh, <laughs> winter 2021. And looking at, for example, the World Bank has their doing business index. So looking at what does it mean to create a business registry? What does good labor law mean? What does good environmental law mean? And there are right, recommendations for all of these policies. It's just that these recommendations tend to be somewhat scattered and somewhat like difficult to kind of coalesce because nobody's really tried to create a legal system from scratch in the recent past. The, the closest example is probably the Dubai International Financial Center, where they focus on a financial legal system and not a kind of broad-based legal system, which is what we're trying to do. And our process is several fold. It's one, reading the sources. It's two, looking at like success cases in different countries. Three, it's talking to various experts and using our common sense and kind of what we see as our lodestar in terms of developing the governance framework is making it right. We focus on basically market, the market and state capacity. So it needs to be a market. It needs to be easy to start a business. It needs to be easy to trade. It needs to be easy to invest. It needs to be easy to hire people. It needs to be easy to fire people. It needs to be easy to do all these things to ensure a very flexible uh, labor market, to ensure right, attractive foreign investment, to create jobs, to sustain entrepreneurship, et cetera. Then in addition to that, we need uh, state capacity. 
And so what this state capacity means is basically having government that's efficient, that can say, I want to do X task and I can do X task in a like reasonable amount of time at a relatively low cost and figure it out. And so if you look I mean, in the US, for example, right in the middle of the Great Depression, it took three years to build the Golden Gate Bridge. And then to build the on-ramp to the Golden Gate Bridge, which is like a 1.5 mile tunnel, it took like, like seven years and actually cost more adjusted for like inflation <laughs> than the Golden Gate Bridge did. And so it's like, all right, the US is much less good at doing things, right? We still can't put a man back on the moon. We did that 50 years ago. What is going on? Mm. And emerging markets have this problem, but to a much greater extent. So how do we design the government to not just have a kind of open market but also have a uh, effective government that is able to provide these public goods, that is able to provide the supporting infrastructure for the market and, and, and for market participants. And, you know, I guess rules and policies get you a certain amount of the way there, but I would imagine a big piece of it is also like recruiting good people and getting a quality staff in place. So how are you guys thinking about that? Sure. So, I mean, this is definitely I one. I say, of, you guys. How are we thinking about that? <laughs> you guys. So, our our goal is to yeah make sure that there is really top quality staff administering these charter cities, and right, this can be done in 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 a few ways. One, you can target expats. So, if there are Nigerians who are working in the U.S. right who went to school in the U.S., you might be able to get some of them to move back to Nigeria to say, hey, do you want to help build a city? Do you want to help like build your country? This is a cool legacy project. But that's probably only going to be enough to fill a handful of positions, not the majority of it. And you probably don't want to hire from the Nigerian government because the Nigerian government is not effective. And so you don't want to bring in those ineffective norms to the new system. So you can hire a handful of people from that, but not you don't really want that to be the majority staffing source. So what we are basically looking at is creating pipelines to train this new generation of administrators. So more specifically, what we are doing is looking to partner with universities. We've had discussions with Universidad Francisco Marroquin in Guatemala. We've had discussions with the African School of Economics to figure out, all right, first, how can we do kind of certificate courses? How can we partner with the charter city developers? How can we have these conversations? And then how can we design full courses? How can we design master's programs, et cetera, to teach the skills that are necessary to actually like administer a charter city? And we believe by helping to develop those pipelines, we can ensure that our administrative system for the charter cities is really effective, is really responsive, and able to ensure that the, the, the cities have kind of the best provision of public goods that is uh, reasonably possible. Great. And, and I guess just going down the list, next is urban planning. How does CCI think about the urban plan for a charter city? Sure. So I've I discussed this a little bit previously with our, our planning guidelines that we are developing. We have on staff, Helba El-Hafani. Uh, she's an Egyptian urban planner. She is great. And we're beginning to think about, all right, what does it mean to kind of balance the needs of urban spaces, of kind of, of the need for order versus the need for this organic evolutionary growth? We're trying to focus on minimizing cars because most of our residents won't be able to afford cars and also cars are bad. We are uh, trying to think about what are the infrastructure costs? How do we balance those infrastructure costs? We're coming up with a financial model that hopefully will make public sometime this this fall to show like, hey, charter cities can be a, a productive, a, a viable product, a profitable uh, investment. And so we're, we're developing this, right? Like, how do we actually think about 
the the physical infrastructure build out of cities? How do we design public spaces? How do we make sure that uh, kind of workplaces work and and residential and educational places are, are accessible to to the broader population? And you talked about before, like the the spectrum of disorder, right? And slums and chaos, chaotic slums over time on one side and order on the other being like overly planned cities like Brasilia. So how are you thinking about that in, in, in regards to this urban planning? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the key of the urban planning is to figure out how to strike the right balance between kind of order and disorder. So we're, we're, we're breaking it up into phases where phase one is basically going to be an industrial park. And that's probably going to be very ordered because it needs to be very clear. Like this is the power reliability. This is the water reliability. These are the roads. This is like the access to the transportation network. But then after that, with phase two and phase three, they're much more organic where we will have, all right, here are the roads. If we think about the commission of 1811, which defined what the, the, the public spaces and private spaces were in New York, they realized, okay, Manhattan is growing and it's growing chaotically. So let's just build a grid. And that grid still defines New York to today. So we are thinking about how can we create this this framework? How can we create these these guidelines that can be applicable to a, a wide range of cities that can really, yeah, I mean, allow for this growth, allow for this 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 kind of organic chaos of a city, but still within enough bounds that it can attract investment, that it can ensure that the proper, I don't know, sort of guidelines, outlines are set down for the city to be successful for a long time in the future. Cool. And so I guess another, the fourth really important thing that the way we break down and think about actually building and implementing charter cities in practice comes down to site selection. You emphasize location before. So how, how, right, how do you select a site? What are the key factors that you think and CCI thinks are most important? Sure. So the key factors, again, are government. We need a government that's amenable to the legal reforms to d- develop a charter city, availability of land. In some emerging markets, the land is not titled and might have some degree of customary ownership. And then it can be very difficult and very costly to develop the the land or acquire the land. And it might, with sort of a certainty that you actually are the sole owner, you want to probably be within, we're currently thinking about doing it within like two hours of an existing population center to allow for access to that population center for some of the first residents, as well as to allow for access to that the piggybacking. Uh, yeah, piggybacking yeah. off of their, their infrastructure network. So you don't have to build your own airport. You don't have to build your own port. So you have kind of advantages. You want to build within a booming trade network. So where you think that trade is going to kind of grow substantially over the coming years, you want to build uh, within a country that has a rapidly urbanizing population so that you can right easily fill the, the new city. I think those are kind of the key elements in thinking about uh, site selection. So from selecting a site to right selecting your first tenants, the biggest, obviously, uh, selection problem being selecting that first big anchor tenant. So how do you think about that sort of thing? And I guess this falls into the realm of uh, broader industrial policy. Sure. So right, the anchor tenant is the, the first mover who hopefully creates the first 5,000 jobs and can get that critical mass started because you have 5,000 people who live there. That makes it worthwhile to build a small restaurant, to build a grocery store, to build these basic amenities to allow for the broader economic activity to take place. And what we think about is making sure that this anchor tenant is in line with the, the broader region. Typically, this is going to mean an industrial anchor tenant. Why? Because industrialization has so far been really the only way that countries have created a lot of jobs and created the sustained economic development. You have a handful of counterexamples, but those are basically only oil-rich countries, and not all countries are blessed with large amounts of oil with small populations. So how do you create like this broad set of jobs? 
the way we like to think about it is a lot of countries, particularly in emerging markets, are export-oriented with a natural resource. So maybe it's copper, maybe it's gold, maybe it's oil, maybe it's palm oil, et cetera. Okay, so maybe you start by creating a processing center for that resource. So instead of shipping that resource to South Africa, to Portugal, to China to get processed, you just ship it to the charter city. And that creates a lot of jobs. It creates, all right, you create some supply chain linkages. So then you have the people who make the tools for the machines within that network. You have some of the financiers for the small and medium-sized enterprises within that network. And then you can start moving up the value chain. If you look at how uh, East Asia industrialized, all of it was basically through this. They started with very low value add manufacturing. Oftentimes it was textile manufacturing and then moved up the value chain to electronics, to automobiles, et cetera, until they became high-income countries. And so we're imagining this somewhat similarly, right? How do you identify that key industry that is not there or is there, but not sufficient quantities that really links to the rest of the region, but also has these positive spillovers. So an industry that leads to, right, like additional industries, additional investment, additional growth, and not an industry that kind of just stands alone and doesn't do that. That being said, there is, I think, the possibility for uh, industries that are focused on information technology. Some countries, because of unstable currencies, the, the developer might not want to create a lot of regional link linkages and might instead want to create linkages with overseas economies to ensure that their uh, funding streams are denominated in currencies that are more stable than the currencies of the host country. And we expect to see a, a kind of variety of these models take place. But our general bet is just to like really scale to tens of millions of people, right? I think the only industries that can really do that, that can accommodate that amount of job creation are, are the industrial, industrial industries or Manufacturing, and yeah. 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 And so, I mean, the last one is risk of expropriation, but you kind of covered that with your talk about Hong Kong and what, what the CCP is currently doing. So I'll ask you, because you, you did bring this up around financing and making it economically viable. So, you know, how do you raise funding to build a charter city? We have several projects on the ground right now. How are we going about talking about financing these cities? Yeah. So the projects right now, like the new city development, it's not really an industry. Everybody's kind of figuring it out by themselves. So there's a variety of models. Some projects have land and then do pre-sales on lots and use that funding, those funding streams to build out infrastructure. Other projects are raising early money from venture capital to kind of close the deal to do the master planning, at which point you can go to more traditional banks. Other countries, are, other uh, projects are at the point where they're raising from these DFCs, development finance or DFIs, development finance institutions like African Export Import Bank, African Development bank. Some projects, the, the entrepreneur or the developer has income streams from other businesses and is reinvesting the, the profits from those income streams into the city development. The way we're basically anticipating that this space emerges is, right, initial funding, let's say up to five or $10 million will be financed primarily through a venture capital model. Most of it won't be venture capital. Most of it will probably be high net worth individuals because most venture capital firms are too afraid of charter cities at this point, with the exception of Pronomos by Patrick Friedman. But that is kind of a somewhat higher risk money where that money can be used to get like the deal in place. So to do them like the initial team. Yeah. On the ground, there's them. a lot of uh, grunt work that you got to do before. Dirt yeah. Is actually like moved. get yeah. the land, get the government buy in, get some yeah. of the master planning done, et cetera, do all of that stuff. And that is somewhat high risk. And right. Char cities have a multi-billion dollar potential. And so that fits the kind of, all right, if you invest in a bunch of projects, you only need a handful to succeed to really pay back the fund. The second, I think, challenge is going to be after you do that, then the once everything is in place, it's more of a traditional real estate project, like a very, very massive real estate project, but more traditional real estate. And that money might come from the the, the DFIs, from uh, the IFC, from African Development Bank, from et cetera, these, these kind of uh, larger players. Right now, my understanding is the DFIs 
mostly focus on right like single projects so a bridge or a power plant and they don't really focus on this like here's a comprehensive investment and so that is a conversation that hopefully can change over these coming years but that is i think where we see at least most of the financing structure happen and the way to think about it is right like okay you have the master planning you get all that done you need a lot of initial capital probably at least a few hundred million dollars and then hopefully over five to 10 years, you're able to kind of break even. And then you have like kind of small profits. And then after you're 15 to 20, right, like then it's, it's basically printing money. So on a very like practical granular level, because I know one of our interns, Jaidi, is working on this right now with you. How do you actually build the financial model for a charter city? Like what, what is going in for that? Or <laughs> get an intern has to do it. Jaidi is actually doing a very good job. So what we have done is basically one, reach out to people who are involved in real estate, who are involved in construction, sort of copy those models what way we're thinking about it is right the early stage because we really want to target lower income residents so some of the roads won't be paved right how do we cut these infrastructure costs not all the uh houses will have indoor plumbing and then the idea is over time as these neighborhoods become more wealthy then you can put in all of these right like i don't know uh things that are more associated with uh sort of high income neighborhoods high income regions so we're really focused on making it accessible to low-income residents and then it's like, I don't know, it's just, right, like, what are the costs and then what are the revenue streams? So the costs, at like, all right, how much does it cost to build a power plant, to build a water filtration plant, to build roads, to build water pipes, to string electricity, uh, power lines? And you can basically get per unit cost for all of that, and that's your costing basis. And then your profit basis, you just make a series of assumptions. All right, are we going to sell land? Are we going to lease land? And what is the cost that we're going to sell land at? What is the cost we're going to lease land at? And how does that change over time? Like how many people are going to move to the city? And so, and I guess this is that's another way where you can incentivize the first movers is by giving them a little discount at the beginning, right? You give them lower costs. You could even uh, cut, like, set Anchor aside as well. 10 percent of the equity of the project and just give that to the first ten thousand residents or something, mm. right? There's a, a number of ways you can they incentivize the first movers to move to the city and not only like move to and live there but like proselytize it across their friends across their social networks etc to to really encourage this kind of rapid move in because you do you do really need to build up a lot of momentum at the beginning to ensure that you i think are, are successful in in starting it and in getting that growth so we're going to transition a little bit to talk about uh the charter cities institute cci as an organization uh give us a little context and the history of the organization, as well as look into some of the things we think about moving into the future. So first, let's start with, tell us a little bit of how you founded this organization, Mark. Sure. So I finished grad school about four years ago. And then the first year I was working for an asset management firm that was doing early stage investments in charter cities. And what I realized was that there was this opportunity, the space for this broader charter cities conversation to take place. The asset management firm was struggling a little bit to find projects to invest in. And it was very clear from some of our discussions with potential partners that there was still this lack of understanding of what charter cities were. And combine that with their the history of the charter city space has to a certain extent been somewhat, I guess, inward looking. And the the belief in starting CCI was that this is a powerful idea. There's a lot of people whose values that this idea, the charter cities would advance. So there's a lot of groups that care about things like urbanization, migration, global poverty, governance. And these organizations, individuals can be enlisted to help work towards charter cities if there can a framework can be developed that helps uh, engage these uh, different stakeholders. And so the idea of the Charter Cities Institute was to create this 
framework to engage all these stakeholders who are interested in these challenges and work with them to figure out how their resources could be deployed to charter cities. And I think the second insight was that there was a lot of effort and attention that was being focused on individual places and or individual people. So for example, Paul Romer, he goes, works in Madagascar and then in Honduras, nothing happens, he leaves and a huge amount of momentum died. And then there was a handful of projects that went to work in Honduras. And until very recently, none of those projects had success or really couldn't make it to a public milestone. And so I had this fear that if there was too much focus on these projects that might not be successful, or if there were too much focus on single people, that could really damage the momentum of the charter city space. And so with this belief that, hey, right, there are this, there is this larger group of stakeholders to engage. And then two, by starting conversations with new city developments and other similar projects in other countries, it will be possible to build up momentum. It will be possible to create a network that could really uh, accelerate the development of charter cities generally. So I guess going a step before that, like, right, why were you attracted to this idea of charter cities in the first place? I believe this starts with Somalis in some way or another. So why don't you tell that story? Sure. So when I was in graduate school, I or not graduate school, this was just after I finished undergrad, I went to a conference and one of the speakers mentioned in passing a guy named Michael Van Naughten, who tried to start a free port in Somaliland. And as, I was, as you do. <laughs> yeah, I was 21 and I was like, oh my God, this is an amazing idea. Like, let me figure out what's going on here. And so I basically started down the rabbit hole. I looked up his book. It's called The Law of the Somalis. It's a very good book. And unfortunately, Michael Van Naughten had since passed away. But the editor to the book, a guy named Spencer McCollum, was still alive. He was in Mexico. So I emailed him and he's like, hey, do you want to come visit me in Mexico? And I'm <laughs> thinking, old men on the internet inviting me to Mexico. That sounds great. Sure. Why not? Uh, this was at the height of the drug war. So I fly down to El Paso, Texas, they go across the border to Juarez, get on a bus and go to Casas Grandes. And him and his wife are waiting to pick me up. You're um, coming off as totally sane right now. <laughs> <laughs> that is the goal. And so I spend a month with Spencer in Mexico chatting about ideas, things like that. And I keep having this idea in the back of my head. I, I start graduate school about a year later at George Mason, doing my PhD in economics. And there's a small community of folks interested in uh, charter cities and competitive governance and seasteading. So I start to have conversations with this, this group of folks. I attend a conference in, in Roatan. And then I start doing my dissertation, my PhD on charter cities. This was about four years ago. I know this was shit. This was about six years ago. I go down to Honduras for about six months to be closer to the action. But unfortunately, Nothing's really happening at that point. So I come back to the U.S. and, and finish my dissertation. And what really attracted me to the idea was that here is this thing that seemed to have world-changing potential, right? These new cities that have a degree of legal autonomy to allow them to have much better laws and regulations. It had pretty clear, massive potential, and nobody was really talking about it or focusing on it. And it always struck me as interesting. It, it, like, here's this world-changing idea, and nobody seems to care and I couldn't quite figure it out. But the more I, I thought about it, and the more I focused on it, the more I, I think convinced myself that, hey, there was this opportunity here. There was this perspective that I had that I, at first I thought, oh, everybody else agrees with this perspective. And then, for example, I went to a conference in London that was basically a planning session for a city in Kazakhstan. And I remember actually like worried. I, I got this invitation. I was like, oh, what am I going to say? I have nothing like unique to offer. Uh, all I'm going to say is just like the standard stuff. Hey, markets work. 
Like, why don't you set up a governance system that is like reasonably effective to ensure that you can attract business and create jobs, et cetera. And I didn't think this was a very unique perspective. So I was just thinking like, hey, I'm like, this is a cool opportunity, but I'm like worried that I will have a value add. And I get there and I, for lack of a better way to put it, I realized that nobody else believes this. Um, <laughs> so I was the only economist they had invited. It was a bunch of urban planners and architects. And so there's one conversation where it's like, we can put the financial district here. We can put it here. They're pointing at a map. We can have tall buildings. We can have medium-sized buildings. And I point out what I thought was obvious, which is like, hey, it doesn't matter how tall the buildings are, how, like where they're put. If you don't have a legal system that is trustworthy, eh, you're not going to get any financial institutions to relocate their businesses there. And this concept was just so foreign to them that I wasn't making any traction. And I was too junior that nobody would really listen to me. So I did a little bit more consulting work with them. I had a trip to Kazakhstan. But it never really fully panned out. This is Newey? No, this is not Newey. This is uh, prior to Newey. This is right when I was finishing graduate school. Okay. And they actually promised me a job. They looked me in my eyes, shook my hand, was like, are you willing to move to Kazakhstan? I was like, I live in Honduras. Like, I don't care. <laughs> um, and then they did not actually make that offer. But that, that basically made me realize like, okay, one, there are these people. It, it took the idea from this ideation phase to this like practical on the ground phase. It's not just people talking about this big idea. It is also people who are like able to move dirt, able to build these relationships with government, able to make it a reality. And then two, the other thing this taught me was, okay, right, like moving from ideation to practice phase. And two, the experts in the room were lacked expertise, let's say, right? <laughs> the experts in the room were not experts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they were like parade as experts, but the challenge is new city developments have very long time horizons. And so because of that, it's difficult to identify like, okay, here are the people who have done it before because it takes 10, 20 years for the people who have quote unquote done it before to see good results. Yeah. And what that means is that instead of going to the people who have quote unquote done it before, right, the new city developers just go to the prestigious institutions. So for example, with us, it was like distinguished professor at MIT in Kazakhstan and right, like, all right, the professors at Harvard, whatever. But these people might be very good at designing city blocks. And their assumption is a city is just a thousand city blocks. So we can control C and control V and just replicate everything without realizing the dynamics are nonlinear and totally not the same. And you have to think about a city in a functionally different way than a single city block. Mm -hmm. And it just made me realize I had gone into these meetings fearing, hey, my ideas aren't that unique. My ideas are not that original. Everybody else like knows this common sense stuff to walking out basically being like, okay, here is a massive opportunity. People are building new cities and the people they are talking to have no meaningful expertise to actually help them. Mm -hmm. And so what I can do is try to work with some of these new city developers to influence them to point in the direction that can really help economic growth, that can really help create these new institutions. But right, like I'm not a distinguished professor at MIT, so it's not just like they're they're gonna they're gonna call me up. So after that, that was basically summer four years ago. I was finishing grad school went to Kazakhstan. That job didn't work out. I started with New Way Capital, the asset management firm. That was first, they were looking at early stage investments in charter cities, but there weren't really very many charter cities to invest in. They were having a challenge with deal flow. And they've since pivoted to launch Prospera in Honduras, arguably the first successful charter city. They need to go all in on a project. And what I wanted to do, I was, I was a little bit nervous about Honduras because there had been a lot of projects that had put a lot of effort in there and not much had happened. So I wanted to create an institution that could hopefully diversify the charter city space a little bit. And that could also have this I don't know, expansionary viewpoint 
trying to work with new city developers, trying to work with international development community, trying to work with all these different stakeholders that had previously not really been engaged. The charter cities community had been somewhat insular, where if people wanted to join, great, like we welcome you in, but there was no explicit outreach attempt to other individuals and organizations. And I thought that there was a large value add that could be had there. And, and that's how I uh, sort of, that, that was the idea in starting the Charter Cities Institute. And so the Charter Cities Institute was founded under another name, which we shall not repeat here, uh-huh. in uh, around Halloween 2017. So yep. about three years ago now, almost exactly. So it's been three years. What did young Mark Letter get wrong? Uh, lots. Uh, <laughs> I mean, a few things. When I started, I thought it would take three to four months to pay myself. It did not. It took a year. <laughs> Raising money is very difficult. To some of the stakeholder groups that I thought would be quicker to engage were have been quite slow to engage. In general, I think our publicity, our uh, kind of level of attention that people are focusing on us is much lower than I initially anticipated. To be honest, a continual source of frustration where right, Paul Romer comes out with the idea, he gets a TED Talk, he gets articles in The Atlantic. And obviously, he's a Nobel laureate caliber economist. And since then, he has won the Nobel Prize. And then two, right, his idea was much more original. Our idea is basically derivative of his. So it's understandable that he gets more attention. You also have organizations like the Seasteading Institute have gotten huge amounts of publicity, partly because of their relationship with Peter Thiel, also partially because it is a very powerful idea. My operating assumption when starting is like, okay, look, our idea is a little bit derivative, but we have a new approach, a new take. We're pursuing this public-private partnership model. We are actually pointing out that there are a lot of these new city developments on the ground that are happening. And so I wouldn't have expected quite like Paul Romer levels of attention. I would have thought that we would have a lot more engagement, right? We have partners that are moving dirt. We have partners that are building universities. We have partners that are creating new legal systems from scratch. I think it's quite exciting. And even though the traction has been much higher than Romer got, for example, and like we, we haven't reached close to that level of attention and, and interest. And given that a primary part of our strategy has been this, this kind of being the, the central point uh, charters these stakeholders can engage with, the 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 lack of having a a large megaphone has been i think quite challenging in that it's affected our ability to get the message out to engage these various stakeholders and so that has been i think maybe one of the the large things that i have been wrong about other things that i'm not sure i was wrong per se about but in terms of have been learning experience is just one learning how to manage people. I was not very good two years ago. I think I've gotten maybe a little bit better, though Curtis might edit something in this track to tell you otherwise. (laughs) Hiring people, building an organization, developing a level of professionalism that I might (laughs) not have previously had. I think Curtis might sneak something in regarding that comment as well. No, man, you go. You're good. (laughs) Those I don't think are unique to me per se. It's just the standard like organization building that that an entrepreneur goes through. And it wasn't wrong. I think I had this maybe intellectual idea of the challenges, but there's a very different understanding like of having an intellectual idea of these challenges versus kind of the visceral experience of actually moving through it. And I mean, I asked you what you got wrong. I should probably out of out of respect and fairness ask you what you got right. Well here's actually another thing I got wrong, but this is the <laughs> thing that makes me look a little bit good at least. Um, <laughs> So the other thing I got, I I expected it to take much longer to get projects on the ground. I thought that the first few years would be largely an intellectual exercise. 
And while there has been a has been a great deal of intellectual exercise, right? We have some partner organizations on the ground. The charter city space is exploding much more quickly than I thought it would, and so that has been a very um, pleasant surprise. I think broadly to answer the question of what was right, I think the the framework was generally right. Like the strategy is working. We have not had to pivot. We have had to adjust our focus. We have had to like kind of target things. But the general idea that going to the roof of a building and having a bullhorn and yelling about charter cities and having people come to you to talk about it has proven correct. Our, I think, best partners have been folks who have reached out to us from donors to uh, individuals to uh, new city developments. We get a, a credible new city development that reaches out to us about once every month. And so it's just really exciting to see that we have, I think, to a certain extent, become this uh, hub for charter cities based on this this fraud strategy. And then two, we are beginning to see our research impact on the ground decisions. So for example, we are developing a charter cities handbook. And this charter cities handbook, we have shared some of the preliminary drafts with an organization, a new city developer that we sometimes work with, and they have found those drafts quite helpful. Um, we have had discussions about our charter cities model legislation and our model charter, and they align very closely with the thoughts of one of our other partners. So we have seen our right, like ideas and research begin to shape the agenda of new city developers on the ground. And I suspect Curtis can probably tell you this. When I started telling him about like, this is what the Charter Cities Handbook is going to be, he might have been a little bit skeptical about the value and our ability to pull it off. <laughs> skeptical is, I think, uh, an apt word in this, <laughs> maybe, in this context. Maybe even a kind word. <laughs> And to continue that, I think there's still definitely a lot of work to go where, where we have gotten the city developer level. We've only just begun to pen penetrate it and we need to penetrate it much further in order to, I think, have the impact. And then the second thing where we have been a little bit slower than I would have hoped in terms of our engagement is with the international development community, with organizations like the World Bank, the UN, et cetera, where we have uh, begun to see some initial shoots of engagement. But really, I think success requires a lot more engagement in terms of co-authoring papers, in terms of hoping to influence their annual reports, their documents to really put charter cities on the agenda, just because that can unlock a huge amount of resources, um, both in terms of technical talent, as well as in terms of financing, that can help really accelerate the and development. just agenda setting. Uh, agenda well. setting yeah. that can really help accelerate the, the development of charter cities. Mm -hmm. So we chatted a bit about CCI's history, how you founded it, how you, you know, got interested in the Charter Cities idea in the first place. What would you say is the biggest kind of binding constraint for the Charter Cities Institute as an organization? So I think one is, right, immediately it's probably just funding. While we have, I think, a very strong team and we are making headway, obviously if we had more funding and more people, we could make more headway. And another major binding constraint is obviously COVID. <laughs> um, yeah. Even if we had more funding now, it would like a lot of the activities that we would want to do in terms of events, in terms of partnership building, are just much, much easier to do in person. And so COVID has proven to, I think, slow our progress somewhat substantially. But then in addition, in thinking about long-term plans, there's a lot of research we can undertake. There's a lot of events we can hold. There's a lot of influence that we can peddle in terms of helping to set the agenda, in terms of bringing stakeholders together. And so I think um, being able to execute on those margins would be would be very good and 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 very productive. I think in addition to that regarding 
CCI, there's the other question of what is the binding constraint on the charter city space generally. And I think there are two answers to this question. One is the this kind of basic answer is politics. Uh, charter cities need political buy-in from key stakeholders. And so you need to have a government that passes legislation or reinterprets existing legislation to allow for the degree of autonomy to make a charter city successful. And that is is a large constraint. At the same time, I see the, the constraints as being nested. So while politics is an important constraint, another constraint is capacity. Do you have a team that is able to execute? And so, for example, in Honduras, the charter cities legislation has been on the books for about seven years. It's only been in the last few months that a charter city has actually been approved. And that was, I believe, right, part of it was politics. The approval process was not structured particularly well. Um, but then part of it was also capacity. You needed somebody who was a bulldog to really force things through to get all the stakeholders at the table to prove that it was possible. And and similarly, looking at some of these other new city developments, I, I think one of the questions is, all right, like who can actually push this through? Who can help create it? Who can build something from from nothing? And so part of this is just like the entrepreneur, you need the entrepreneur to, to push things forward. And part of it is this general capacity where there needs to be this support structure for the entrepreneur. If you think about Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley is designed to produce technology startups. So there's an entire supporting infrastructure. There are venture capitalists to fund early stage, to fund late stage. There's angel investors. There's mentorship. There's blogs talking about like what product market fit is. How do you know when you're successful? How do you know when you should raise money? How do you know how to hire people? How do you know how to hire executives? How do you know how to hire people who are outside your specific skill set? Right? There's this entire set of discussions and ideas where if you're plugged in, it becomes much easier to build and scale a company. We aren't there anywhere close to there at Charter Cities, where there's a few entrepreneurs who are really trying to push things forward. And there are some discussions going. These discussions are much better than they were several years ago, but it's still quite nascent. And so all right, if you're trying to hire an executive, who do you hire? There's no talent pool available. You have to hire for probably from somebody outside the Charter City space. Although your CEO tweet did do pretty well, didn't it? Lots of people were interested in it, <laughs> but they were most of them were not from the Charter City space. So there, there is this level of interest, but it hasn't been kind of systematized. It hasn't been made legible. It hasn't really created the right in terms of. So, so with that, there, there's like the general capacity. And I think a key part of that is also funding. Patry Friedman has Pronomos Capital. They're doing early stage investments, but it's only a $10 million fund, right? Like it can write small initial checks, but even if you want to raise several million dollars, do the initial master planning, which if you're engaging in a city side project, you need a few million dollars, mm -hmm. if not more. And Patry isn't able to fill those rounds himself, right? He can participate, but you need to get uh, additional investors. Then added on to that challenge is, okay, it, let's assume you get that master plan successfully. Where do you go from there? And it's hard to know exactly where you go from there. At this stage, most of the DFIs, the development finance institutions, are still relatively conservative. They don't know what charter cities are. They are unlikely to uh, fully engage. Some of them have mandates that need to be project specific. So they will build a bridge or they will build a PowerPoint or they will build a road. But a, a charter city, it has all of these elements. So right, there needs to be some change in mandate or at least change in understanding with these DFIs and with these other large players to really start engaging with the charter city space. And so you mentioned a few times in the last answer about strategy. And so I know we've spoken a few times in this conversation about the Charter Cities Institute 
building the ecosystem for charter cities. So why focus on the ecosystem? Why is that part of our mission statement? Yeah, so I think what is, there's several ways to break this down. First, I think one of the challenges in the charter city space over the last 10 years has been perhaps a lack of strategic vision. The ideas are there, but uh, the execution sometimes can be quite good. There have been talented people who have participated, but they haven't, in my opinion, mapped the idea maze properly, where the idea maze, you don't know exactly what's going to happen in your startup or in your enterprise, but you have a decision tree where you know about the kind of impacts that different external shocks will have on your decision making, and you've already mapped it out to a certain extent. You understand what happened historically. And so with that, you're able to form a clear, coherent strategy that uh, is able to scale to have a large impact. And I think a lot of the attempts have not had that broad focus, which has led to a lot of effort that, I mean, sometimes even the best laid plans go awry, but there hasn't been as much learning within the space as I think otherwise possible. And I think CCI can kind of hopefully add to this by creating this set of knowledge, creating this set of practices that can inform entrepreneurs around the world. But I think the the key thing to understand as to why to focus on the ecosystem creation instead of a single project is several fold. One, just risk diversification. If you're focusing on a single project, that single project has a high probability of failure. And when we're thinking about a charter city space, I think it's important to generate momentum and build up momentum. And having a network allows for the building of momentum and the sharing of information much better than a, a single project. Two is by its nature, right? Charter cities require a huge amount of local on the ground context. In Silicon Valley, for example, you can start a startup and you don't need somebody on the ground in Nigeria in the first six months, unless you're starting a startup like in Nigeria. Mm. But with a charter city, if you're building a charter city in Nigeria, you do need somebody on the ground in Nigeria. Not only that, you need to have a deep personal knowledge of Nigeria. Who are the key stakeholders to talk to? What government agencies will be sympathetic? What government agencies won't be sympathetic? And this is, I think, tremendously challenging for if you are an entrepreneur, you can't just parachute in one of these countries. You need this network. You need this knowledge. You need this understanding. And so even if I did want to start a charter city from scratch three years ago, it's unclear what meaningful progress I could have made just given the fact of a limited network and given the fact that if you go to an emerging country, an emerging market, you're often charged the American price because they just see you as a, as a bag full of money that can be taken advantage of. I think a, a third important aspect of charter cities is of building the ecosystem is that you need to, to really, I think, accelerate the development of charter cities. One charter city just isn't enough. So, all right, there is now a charter city or at least a, a proto charter city, whatever you want to call it, Pro- Prospera, that has a lot of charter city elements in Honduras. What replication are we going to see elsewhere? Is Guatemala going to pass a law? Is El Salvador going to pass a law uh, to allow for charter cities? So they have launched Prospera, and I believe their plan is in the first five or 10 years to get $500 million of investment. So maybe in five or 10 years, when there is this large investment, assuming that they are successful, then these nearby countries uh, adopt um, charter cities legislation. That's five or 10 years in the future. That's a really long time. And that's only in Central America. That's not South America. That's not Africa. That's not Asia. And so because charter cities by their very nature have these long time horizons, and additionally, because the problems that they are uh, aiming to solve, namely this very rapid urbanization, 
has a limited time horizon, right? People move to cities. Once they're in cities, there's no like moving them out of cities. And the, the the changing those embedded structures, both institutional as well as physical infrastructure, once people live in cities, is monumentally more difficult than changing it prior to their moving to c- cities. So there is this, I think, moral urgency of acting very quickly in the charter city space, combined with this very long feedback loop by the nature of new city developments having this long feedback loop. And so a nonprofit, namely the Charter Cities Institute, by building an ecosystem, we can short circuit this feedback loop where, okay, now that we have a global network, it's much easier to share lessons from Prospera to Africa. It's much easier to share lessons from some of the projects we're working with in Africa to Latin America, to Asia, et cetera. And by building out this network, we can, yeah, short circuit this feedback loop and help create this set of best practices, this set of knowledge, this set of understanding that can greatly accelerate the development of charter cities in a way that single projects, I think, are unlikely to do. This isn't to say that we don't like single projects are obviously crucial to the charter city success and we need more of them. But most of them currently just don't have the scale to have right, like the massive, I don't know what to call it, like educational impact or cultural impact. And even if they do, having that cultural impact necessitates uh, people who can help spread it. So some of the projects we are working with, for example, in Nigeria, in Zambia, are interested in having us as a partner in part because we can help broadcast their message. We can help put them in front of people they might otherwise not talk to. We can help put them in front of media sources that might not otherwise be interested. And so you do need to build this, I don't know, message spreading network too, to ensure that these lessons are are learned and and can be broadly applied. And I think there's a a very large um, value add in that, even if that value can be somewhat difficult to capture. Great. And and so you talked a bit about, you know, what you've gotten right since you founded the Institute three years ago, what you got not so right. But let's talk about how, how you've kind of built CCI as an institution. How is it growing over the last, what was year one like? What was year two, year three? And what do we expect for, for the future? Sure. So year one was, I'm kind of embarrassed to look back on it. Um, <laughs> Our website was mediocre. We had a silly name. I traveled a lot. Uh, Most of that travel might not have been very productive where I was trying to kind of sell the idea and it was doing a multiple of things. It was one, trying to get funding so I could pay myself and hopefully hire and pay other people. It was two, trying to build the network, trying to plant the seeds. Thinking back on it, there's like there's a handful of people who I think I met in that first year of traveling who have since proven to be quite valuable and helpful, but most of them probably weren't. <laughs> but it was really trying to write, like, sell this big idea and begin to start nailing down the specifics. Then the second year, I, I made my first hire. And right, that we we kind of, I mean, it was still, we nailed down the specifics a little bit more. We held some events. We, we started to really build a network. Um, we started, I to write a little bit more, um, we, we vast, drastically improved our website and, and we, we started to make, I think, what we were doing a little bit more concrete. Uh, over the last year or so, we have grown, I think, technically, actually, from two people to nine, maybe three people to nine. I don't know if Jeff was technically on board a year ago and really built out our research capacity so we could deliver. So I met a lot of people and it's like, oh, let's do this partnership. Cool. Yes. But like, all right, it's just me. I don't have time to (laughs) do a lot of research. I'm trying to do a lot of other things. There's this, I think, saying in Silicon Valley where a startup is first doing everything poorly and then adding some people and doing everything mediocrely. I think the fancy term is minimum viable 
product. Yeah, and then adding more people and doing everything like better and then adding a lot of people and doing everything very well. And so over the last year, what we've seen is we've added people and we're doing things, I think, much better. At the same time, I think there's a lot of improvement. It's just natural, right? Like, I think this is one of the challenges in that in hiring, we're trying to add people from who have international development experience, as well as people who have this entrepreneurial ability. And unfortunately, the overlap is not as much as I would <laughs> like sometimes. Curtis <laughs> is shaking his head because- We're um, trying to make friends, man. I'm phrasing that diplomatically. <laughs> and there is this, I think to a certain extent, sometimes this expert bias where once you go very deep on a subject, um, this happened to me in grad school where it's like, oh, I haven't read the like five books on that subject. So I'm not an expert. I actually remember at one point somebody asked me like, Mark, what do you know about Somalia? And I was like, oh, I've only read five books on the subject. I'm not really an expert. And he was like, well, five books seems like a lot, but that's just how I think a lot of uh, academics think. And so there has been this knowledge that we want to pull from the international development community, but we also want to ensure that it is paired with this, okay, I don't know. That means I doesn't mean I kind of right, say, all right, this is somebody else's responsibility, but this just means I need to like put on my thinking cap and go talk to people. And so really balancing that kind of get done attitude, that figure it out attitude with this domain specific knowledge has been, I think, quite important in, in kind of building out our team, in, in building out our success. A lot of previous, I think, charter cities and related organizations have focused on hiring people who are in the space. And as I mentioned, like our expansionary attitude is not just focused to like who we're forming partnerships with, but I think often like also who we hire. A lot of the people we hire don't know really what charter cities are when they come in. They might have read a little bit or heard a podcast, but it is much more of a right like we have an onboarding plan, much more of a way to, I guess, get people in line with the ideas with our, our general belief being charter cities are awesome. So like once people learn what they are, they will believe that they're awesome, too. And that's much easier to overcome than this domain-specific knowledge that um, in terms of whether it's communications or fundraising or right like governance that that people spend years studying and, and getting quite good at. And so we, we tend to focus on emphasizing the latter for hires rather than the former to ensure that we have a team that I think can execute very effectively. And now we're nine people, so we're still quite small. Um, I think we're much better able to execute and deliver on projects than we were a year ago, but at the same time, obviously, if we have a team of 20 people, 40 people, right, we'll be able to undertake a much larger number of projects than currently. And my general belief is like charter cities are drastically underfunded. I mean, there could be a budget of like $10 million plus $50 million, and there would the, the marginal impact of a dollar, it does not decrease very quickly at this point, right? Like, I mean, obviously, if things like malarial nets, the marginal impact of a dollar is almost constant throughout. And it's not constant for charter cities, but it's the, the decrease is pretty slow. There's just a huge amount of work that can be done, given that we're trying to build cities. So <laughs> there's lots of capital necessary. So on the talk, topic of hiring, right, you kind of talked a bit about how you evaluate candidates. You want someone who's scrappy and entrepreneurial. You talked a bit about the background and, and kind of skill set you're looking for in, in international development people. What else are you looking for in terms of background and, and skill set? 
Yeah, I think there needs to be a scrappy entrepreneurialness. I ideally the candidate should be on Twitter way too much just so we can make <laughs> jokes at the office. Um, <laughs> I can attest to being left out. Yes, <laughs> I think that experience with international development, with governance, or with urban planning, with cities, just some familiarity with with the space. the The idea is like our, our idea that there is this core set of charter cities ideas and understanding. This core set it shares a lot of values with a lot of mainstream ideas in terms of development, this focus on governance, this focus on poverty alleviation, this focus on economic growth. But we have, as I think, a particular instantiation of these ideas and values, plus a strategic plan to execute. And so if you are adjacent, whether it's cities, whether it's like Silicon Valley, whether it's uh, governance, whether it is urban planning, there is this I think, uh, belief that, okay, you have your expertise, let's bring you on board, let's inculcate you into one, right, like what charter cities are, this charter cities understanding and belief, and then two, what uh, kind of CCI culture is, this uh, entrepreneurialness, this intellectual curiosity, this willingness to tackle new challenges. By its nature, I think this uh, job requires you to do things that you haven't done before. And so we need a team that is willing to kind of roll up their their sleeves and figure it out. Additionally, how I think about the CCI culture is that we are building the culture not just for CCI, but also for the charter cities space generally. And what this means is that there is this, I think this was a Paul Graham tweet uh, where somebody tweeted like, it's scary building a company and watching like the entire company adopt like your own habits, whether they're good or bad. Um, and Paul Graham's response was, sometimes you even see this happen in entire industries, which, to be honest, is is kind of terrifying because I have a lot of habits that I'm not particularly proud of. <laughs> and so what I try to emphasize in our office is that we need to hold ourselves to a very high standard, both um, internally as a culture, because to build an organization, it's important to have a good office culture so people are able to make decisions independently while still being in line with the broader goals of the organization. But then additionally, because for a lot of charter city developments, we are one of the primary um, sort of touch points, if not the only touch point. And therefore, our culture and our values will be, I think, interpreted as representing the entire charter cities community. And so ensuring that we don't just have values to improve our productivity as an organization, we also want values to improve, I don't know, the charter city space generally. And I think the values are similarly thing, similar things like intellectual curiosity, um, willingness to take risks, a big vision, a spirit of generosity, things like that. But I truly believe that in 30, 40 years, right, people are going to look back at some of these decisions that we're making in the first few years. They're going to look at the arguments we had, the successes, the failures, et cetera, and they will inform how people think about this, this space, about these, these cities where tens of millions of people might live and where people are going to make decisions based on what they take from the lessons of our work. And, and to me, that's, I think, tremendously important and gives us a huge amount of responsibility to act as, I think, careful stewards for what we're doing. And so what what positions is CCI looking to fill over the coming years? And, and if folks do hear this and they want to get involved, what skills should they be building out? Sure. So, well, I think there there's two questions. One is CCI and then two is charter cities generally. So with CCI, I think what we are going to do is uh, our primary focus is research. 
we are con- going to continue to focus on research. And so we have a emphasis on, ideally, we want to hire researchers from the markets we are working in, whether it's Latin America, whether it's Africa, whether it's Asia. There is some domain-specific knowledge that is very valuable for people who live and experience those conditions that it's just very difficult to get if you are not in that situation. And specifically, what these research positions might look like is things like urban planning, urban governance, uh, I don't know, banking law and regulation. Curtis is having fun with that right now. <laughs> what other urban, what other, I don't know, research positions are we thinking about? We will we'll need legal help. I think in addition to that, what we are looking at, right, we will need to build out our communications department. So to help ensure that we message effectively uh, across a wide audience, I think we have a very strong internal writing culture. And so we value being able to communicate effectively in writing uh, quite highly and ensuring that we can continue to fill positions with people who are effective writers. In addition, we have a development department. So people who are able to help fundraise, uh, people who are able to unlock new sources of revenue, whether it is right now, for example, most of our donations are from high net worth individuals. It would be great to start getting uh, money from foundations or to diversify our revenue streams a little bit. So people who are good grant writers, partnerships, we will need to form a lot of partnerships with different organizations. We will need to host events. And obviously, we as we continue to grow, we will need to ensure like our operations stay smooth and we can uh, kind of provide good compensation packages to attract the, the best quality candidates. And that is what I think we are thinking about with CCI as an organization. There's the broader charter city space, which has a lot more roles to fill. And so I think this is going to be things like one is just like, all right, on the, the, the general side is urban planning, is financing, whether it's early stage financing, which is a little bit more venture capital style, or whether it's late stage financing, which is more real estate style, uh, engineers, project managers. I mean, some of the challenges are land acquisition. So if you are, happen to be a very large landowner in an emerging market, <laughs> give us a call. We have some ideas. So landowners, if you're a politician in, in an emerging market, you're interested in charter cities, or if you're a public intellectual, an advisor, you're interested in charter cities, right? I, I see charter cities as a something that really affects almost everyone and everything. And so if you, you have this level of interest, whatever your skill set, if you're working in emerging markets, this probably has some relation to something that you do. And we're happy to really have a conversation about that. I think more specifically, if you want to be in the charter cities space per se, what is really helpful at this stage in the charter city space, not CCI, but is just young entrepreneurial people with a high degree of aptitude and high degree of, I guess, what might be described as not really autonomy, but people with a lot of drive who can just figure problems out, this kind of classic entrepreneurial spirit. And uh, some of our partners, I suspect, would be quite interested and have expressed interest in hiring people uh, like this, that you can just throw at problems and they figure it out. And so I think that there is right now over the next two years, I think that will kind of be the primary characteristic of folks getting involved in the charter city space is just this this very high ability, very um, able to throw at a wide degree of, of, of problems, kind of figure it out type person. And over the right, like it's still very early. So over next two years, three years, things will start to kind of formalize, get structure, and then there will be more of a need for much more uh, specific positions. But for now, it's, it's it's more of the kind of generalist, I think, in this space that that is probably the primary value. So in terms of apart from you growing up here, why start CCI in Washington, D.C.? Influence. 
I mean, if you want to do tech, you go to Silicon Valley. If you want to act, you go to LA. If you want to do finance, you go to New York. If you want to peddle influence, you go to Washington, D.C. And poetic. Yeah. So I think, for example, one of the challenges the Seasteading Institute faced was they adopted this Silicon Valley attitude where it's kind of like, screw you, we can do it better, which if you're working with governments, if you're doing a startup, you don't need to ask Google or IBM, hey, is my startup okay? If you want to build a new governing system, you do need to ask governments, hey, is this okay? Like, can we work together? And that requires an attitude and approach that is not adversarial, that is not confrontational. And to do that, it's quite important to be in Washington, D.C. That's where all of these conversations happen. Um, The World Bank has a headquarters in D.C. Um, Center for Global Development is in D.C. All the think tanks are in D.C. The talent pool is in D.C. for a lot of these things. And so being in D.C. and able to have these conversations and able to influence some of these larger organizations to help them begin to focus on charter cities, I believe, is is crucial for the long-term success. And I should have probably asked this earlier, but... Can you explain in concrete terms what CCI does? So our primary function is really as a think tank slash advocacy organization. And so we do a variety of things around this. One, we put out white papers. We do research. So our research tends to take several different dimensions. We put out what we are just calling reference guides. And our hope is that these reference guides will be used by new city developers to influence their decisions on the ground. And so these reference guides are things like a model charter, model legislation, um, a governance handbook, um, urban planning guidelines that can really develop a a common model for what a charter city is that, that will then be kind of adjusted on a case by case basis. In addition, we have a research uh, paper series where we try to think, uh, we, we work with typically outside academics. And so we've done one on radical exchange. We have done one that we're publishing soon on local city management. And we're interested in publishing this wide variety of papers, potentially doing one on like gender in cities, one on environmentalism in cities, one urban planning in cities, right? Just trying to distill information from this these specific, I don't know, areas, but the still how it applies to charter cities. Then we also have things like that are a little bit more I don't know, public facing, a little bit more accessible. We have a blog, we are on social media, we have a podcast, we have a YouTube channel. The YouTube channel is still kind of nerdy, but we're slowly try- trying to turn our nerdiness down to make it more acceptable uh, or more, I don't know, digestible to a broader audience. We did host events and we will begin to host events again once COVID is over. We believe that stakeholder engagement is very important and can happen much more naturally in in-person environments than in non-person environments than kind of online. We have uh, partnerships, so we like to work with other organizations. We figure out, all right, can we co-author a paper? Can we do a joint event? Can we, right, like work together on this common or shared purpose? And then, lastly, we work with new city developments on the ground. There are a lot of new city developers on the ground, and we're working with uh, several, one in in Zambia, two in Nigeria, one in Latin America, to help them overcome their challenges, whether it's working with government, whether it is drafting regulations, legislation, whether it's figuring out how to create an administrative structure from scratch. We try to be relatively flexible in terms of what the individual needs of the partner are, and so long as they share the the common vision and we can work out an agreement, then we we figure out uh, how we can help. So just to summing that up in uh, digestible terms, so so technical assistance, right? Partnering with yep. new city developers on the ground, 
partnerships with, we want to obviously get into the international development community. So folks like the UN, World Bank, DFC, and others research. So that's my jam uh, where we write research papers and our reference guides, and then more, more media and events type stuff. So on top of that, how does CCI measure its impact? So this is a tricky question. I actually, over the last few days, I looked through a bunch of think tanks and how they measured their impact and all the measurements are not very good. Yeah. <laughs> Where it's like, we produced this many papers. It's like, okay, that's an output, not like a, that's not an outcome. That's an output, right? Mm-hmm. And the question is, if you're a think tank, did you influence this law? Like, would this, okay, maybe this law would have been much worse without you, or maybe you helped introduce this new law, or maybe you changed the national conversation. So they're now focusing on X instead of Y. But the counterfactual is very difficult because with a company, the counter, like the question is, right, are you making money? What is like cash flow in versus cash flow out? And so there are ways to measure that with, with nonprofits. It is quite tricky. Up until now, we've been small enough that, like, to be honest, we can do it a little bit by gut feel. We know what would have happened without us. Obviously, this requires a degree of trust from people who, right, like, are listening. But we can point and say, hey, this company would not have existed without us, which has happened on two occasions at least. We can point and say, hey, this thing tra- drastically changed their mission statement to make it much more in line with our language than it was before, which is also something that has happened. We can say that like this funding opportunity to one of our partners would not have happened if it wasn't for an introduction that either we facilitated or where they met at our event. We can The charter city space is still small enough that it is relatively possible to develop individual causal links for almost everything that has happened. So broadly, the question, how do we measure our influence? It is Um, or how do we measure success? It is basically by influence. It is like if we're looking five years in the future, it is the World Bank, it is the UN, it is the World Economic Forum, all of these having charter cities at the top of their agenda and all of them directing substantial resources in both like manpower and technical assistance and energy as well as financial resources to charter cities. And what this means is that like, right, while they are directing resources, this means that more charter cities are being built than would otherwise have been built. The charter cities that are being built are uh, being built on a faster scale that are making decisions better because we have helped to create this framework in place and this network in place such that there can be a, a greater overall impact. So if we're thinking 10, 20 years in the future, right, the counterfactual is there are millions of people who have better lives because they're living in charter cities than if we had not existed. So the ultimate goal is to lift tens of millions of people out of poverty with charter cities. But obviously establishing this, this causal link is, is a little bit tricky. And what we are doing now that we've really created and solidified our leadership team is coming up with really specific metrics for every department so we can start measuring our success in terms of how are we influencing the conversation? What is happening, which otherwise would not have happened? Because I really want to ensure a lot of nonprofit organizations tend just to become, I don't know, clubs where the donors like hanging out with their friends and the um, staff just likes talking about ideas, which is fine. It's a club, but have to a certain extent given up on achieving change. And we are very much outcome oriented. We are very much focused on achieving change. And as such, it's, it's really, I think, crucial to ensure that we have are focused on that. I'm not even sure. Like metrics, I think are important. I mean, ultimately, like CCI probably taps out at 50 or 100 people. We're never really going to get above Dunbar's number, and so I think the measurement challenges are a little bit less than if you're in a 10,000 person organization. Nevertheless, they still exist, and, and figuring out how to quantify them a little bit better to ensure that we are having the impact that we are dedicating our resources to to where we want to go is is key. Great. So now to kind of the future of 
Charter Cities as an idea. So what Charter City developments are you most excited about? And what do you think the Charter City space will look like in five years, 10 years down the road? Sure. So some of the projects I'm most excited about are partner organizations. <laughs> so in Zambia and Kwashi, they started moving dirt on their university. That's very exciting. I'm on the board of the university. So <laughs> Mark is a part owner of a university that is <laughs> well, terrifying. Well, CCI is. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> and so that's my favorite par- party trick, co-founder of a Zambian university. <laughs> in addition, in Nigeria, working with two projects, Talent City and Inyimba Economic City, Talent City is led by Ayino Lua Aboyeshi, who is a uh, Nigerian entrepreneur. They're focusing on technology and on the technology sector. And I think getting that will draw a lot of attention. It, like Technology tends to be relatively sexy. And Yimba Economic City is new city development. It's being built on 95 square kilometers for 1.5 million residents. The scale of it is just completely massive. And Um, We are working with them to apply Nigerian special economic zone law, but adopting it a little bit because it's city scale instead of an industrial park and seeing what we can implement there. So there is this, I think, interesting regulatory aspect as well as the scale just being tremendous. And then in Latin America, we're working with a project that has a very high degree of legal autonomy. And so figuring out what does it actually mean to create a legal and regulatory system from scratch. This project is also targeting lower income residents, which is is, is quite interesting because that price point, a lot of these new city developments haven't figured out how to hit a, a lower price point to be accessible to the widest range of people. Other projects that we aren't directly working with, but are still kind of engaged with. Prospera is obviously exciting, right? The, this is the first, or at least arguably the first uh, charter city development in the world in, in Roatan, Honduras. One of the projects that I'm working on in my personal capacity is Victoria Harbor Group to build a new city for Hong Kong residents. That is a tremendously exciting project. And then we have a pipeline, or I guess a, a handful more projects that we've had early discussions with that are also quite interesting that might not be ready to go public at this stage, but we believe can have a meaningful impact down the line. Great. And so Just looking at the elevator pitch for the Charter Cities Institute, what would it be? Charter cities, new cities with better laws, have the potential to lift tens of millions of people out of poverty by improving governance in emerging markets and combining that with new city development. So come and join us as we change the world for the better. Mark? Tell us what the Charter Cities Institute looks like in five years or 10 years. Thank you for asking, Curtis. So our goal is to be a a global, like well-known organization. So we want to be setting the agenda. We want to be in all of the discussions, similarly to how environmentalism within about a 10-year period went from this idea that people had in the back of their minds to the launching of the organizations like the EPA, to the passage of NEPA to being a front and center consideration for policymaking across the United States, where there were new um, government organizations that were dedicated to it, or obviously a lot of private organizations. And then there were, it was just a primary concern and consideration for almost any project. And similarly, given the, I guess, scope of charter cities and their potential to relate to almost all areas that are of concern in emerging markets, We are hoping that Charter Cities Institute can drive that conversation and can help spawn the creation of this larger supporting environment. And so in practice, what would that look like? That would mean organizations like the UN and World Bank 
put charter cities in their agenda. There are charter cities panels at their major conferences. There are charter city speakers at those events. Organizations like World Economic Forum, for example, might create a I don't know, working group on charter cities. Countries start adopting charter cities legislation. CCI speakers or CCI staff go to speak to, right, uh, are invited to speak at national congresses um, or legislatures about the impact of charter cities. CCI experts are helping to draft charter cities legislation, are helping to draft city charters, are helping to really set up these, these governance frameworks that there are um, these major funds, the DFIs, as well as sovereign wealth funds, whether it's IFC, whether it's, I don't know, Mubadala, begin to explicitly consider charter cities as a area to invest in. You have a series of charter cities conferences. Of course, Charter Cities Institute will be organizing them, but other organizations will throw related conferences or invite relevant speakers to give the charter cities perspective that everybody in the international development community will have an opinion on charter cities. They don't all have to be positive, but it needs to be so thick that you can't really escape it. And obviously, part of this means that hopefully it will become much easier for charter city developers where there is a active talent pool for, for example, I don't know, senior, like the vice president of sales. So if you need somebody to sell your lots, there is a talent pool that exists who has done that with charter cities before. There are organizations that can help get the first 10,000 residents to the charter city via social network and promotion. There are funds that are dedicated to early stage charter city investing. Hopefully Patrick Friedman can scale up, but then maybe one or two others such that there is a wider pool of, of available funding and interest. There is a strong network, particularly with a heavy focus on people in emerging markets of folks interested in charter cities, whether it's founding them, whether it's working for them, whether it's talking about them, that there is this, this, this level of interest. And then obviously, most importantly, if we're thinking in five years, I think having maybe 10, 20 charter cities that are being developed with a total population of 10 million people, obviously there won't be 10 million people living in them now, but like with projected population of 10 million. So if we assume 20 charter cities total with the population of 10 million or projected population, that means average population in charter cities is about a half million, which is ambitious in five years, but I think um, probably feasible if we execute extremely effectively and really have that the groundwork be laid for this hopefully massive explosion in human flourishing and human well-being and human creativity that can can help i don't know lift a lot of lives out of poverty okay to end why don't you tell folks who are interested in listening where they can go to learn a little more you can check us out at cci.city on twitter i am m-a-r-k-l-u-t-t-r on twitter Mark Lutter. We are also on Facebook. We are on Instagram. Um, I think we're going to revive our Instagram soon. So you can follow us and get the new updates. We are on LinkedIn. We have a newsletter. Uh, we have a blog. Come check us out and be part we of the have conversation. a website. We have a website. <laughs> CharterCitiesInstitute.org. Great. With that, thanks so much. And that's it. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. <laughs>